0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials, so it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii, and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well Maui Nui venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com Use promo code MEAT Eater for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwear-less. The Meat Eater podcast.
1: You can't predict
0: anything. All right. I want to get to. I want to do all the introductions and explain where we're at. But first, I have a a quick question, just based off a painting that I just ran into in the entryway of the Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, do wolves get after bighorns? They do. I think. I think um, mountain lion
2: and clay mountain lion probably a little bit more of a, a problem, certainly in the lower forty eight. But yeah, wolves definitely into thinhorn habitat and and big time up in BC and in Alberta. You bet. They're it just sure seems
0: like they, I don't know, man, it just feels like, like a little bit out of their, like that kind of country seems a little bit out of their area of expertise. But they've hit them in the winter or what? The Bighorn, like down here in the lower 48 in the winter?
3: Well, they'll, they'll hit them different times of the year, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, further south, desert Bighorns, you've, as Greg just referenced, uh, mountain lions are a little bit tougher, tougher on sheep than wolves. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough place to make a living.
0: Have there been cases where Mexican gray wolves have killed desert bighorns? Do they know about that yet?
3: You know, I don't, I don't have any documentation of that. I, I have not heard that, but I'm sure they would.
0: Yeah. Man, it seems like a formidable... Like when you, when you factor the topography and then just like the horn structure and stuff, well, it just seems you, like a formidable foe.
3: It, 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 they really are. If you, if you look at the, the way the animal is built... You know, the way their eyes are positioned on their heads. If you look at these mounts in this room, just just look at, you know, how much they see. Uh, yeah, big you know, eyes bugging outside the of their head. Yeah. You know, their greatest defense. They see a, a long ways, a lot further than than we do. Uh, if you look at the country in which they live, it's the, the topography's tough. There's always escape terrain and places for those animals to escape. So, you know, they've survived, uh they 've adapted and, and learned to to deal with predator issues through time but yeah it's it 's tough
0: there's't know if you're there's a guy i can't remember his name a professor at University of Alaska at Fairbanks and he wrote a like a natural history book about Alaska, and in it he talks about an eyewitness account of a friend of his who watched a single lynx chase a doll ram down a gully, jump on its back, and kill it with a bike. To the base of its neck yep a lynx who's like a snowshoe hair specialist
3: well it's just not it's it's not just the four-legged predators either you have eagles and and other things it in fact i've observed firsthand uh golden eagles I, I was hiking an area one time uh working with sheep and, and overhead i saw a lamb go by it no really oh yeah so it, it, it's it's not just the four-legged predators. wow
0: that's pretty nuts. I, didn't, I heard that they kill him, but I didn't know they carried him off. I thought they just like ran him off, like somehow scared him or spooked him or ran him off ledges and then killed him. Well, like
3: that. Yeah, they, I observed it firsthand. They pick him up. You know they're small. Yeah, tiny animal. Just a little lamb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We watched
0: a golden eagle spend twenty minutes working over a bull elk.
4: I think it Di- two two golden two, eagles. yeah
0: working over a bull dive bombing his head.
3: And you could tell this boy Alec did not like it. He was
0: agitated, man.
3: I've I've flown surveys and almost had them land in the helicopter with you, and they are huge (laughs) (laughs) animals.
0: All right, so we we should probably, uh, so so like I said, we're at the, uh, you guys call it the World Headquarters?
2: World Headquarters of the Wild Sheep Foundation.
0: World Headquarters, Wild Sheep Foundation, Bozeman, Montana. Still in Bozeman?
2: still in bozeman
0: it's Bozeman. yeah this
2: is bozeman it's it's almost almost belgrade and almost four corners but it's it's a so, bozeman
0: bozeman address so if i write you a letter i put it, bozeman you out. put bozeman yeah um let, let's go around and do uh let's go around and do introductions we'll do it like uh i like to do it as though i'm dealing cards and so you're up
5: uh garrett Longs. So i'm the marketing and communications director here uh exhibits and sponsors manager store manager Um, what else, Gray? You clean toilets. Yeah, clean toilets, um, on a frequent (laughs) basis. Uh, and I came over here just recently, about three months ago. I previously was the conservation leader over at Sitka, um, Sitka Gear just down the road. Um, and came over here to just do real conservation work and it, it's been a blast. I mean, it's been pretty cool.
0: So you guys probably have a you probably had a relationship with this organization when you were there cuz I know Saca does a lot of stuff in support of.
5: Yeah, you know. so so my job there was actually kind of inverse of what it is here. I I took in all the contracts, conservation contracts and decided what we spent money on, prioritized conservation organizations. So it was great actually coming to the Wild Sheep Foundation cuz they were one of One of the groups that I use as an example, you know, going through like 990 forms and things like that with other organizations, like, hey, this is what we're looking for. These are the type of projects we want to fund, um, all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty cool getting a call from Gray. But, yeah, I had worked with them a lot. And then I still work with them over there a lot, too, because they support us very heavily. That's good. Go ahead, sir. Uh,
3: Clay Brewer, I'm the Bighorn Program Lead, uh, uh, Conservation Director for the Wild Sheep Foundation. I, I worked for almost 30 years, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, was the, did a lot of things, was the, the bighorn, mule deer, pronghorn guy for years, uh, served in various leadership roles, uh, actually served as the interim wildlife director for a year and a half, and, and, uh, so my experience, I have, uh, primarily on the ground experience, um, i 'm not necessarily enamored with these sorts of things that we 're doing here today uh, i 've I've spent my life out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I enjoy that that aspect of it so uh, I spent the majority of my my career uh, restoring sheep bighorn sheep in Texas they were extirpated by about one thousand nine hundred and sixty and so through our efforts, that, that Come on, we've they done hung there. out as
0: late as 1960. Oh yeah, and then got extirpated.
3: The last documented sighting of a native Texas bighorn occurred October of 1958 in the Sierra Diablo Mountains, which is a little bit south of uh, of the Guadalupe Mountains.
0: Usually, when we're talking about something vanishing, it's 20 years earlier.
3: Now, as 1960 was what what we guess anyway. So after that. Uh, Lots of work, uh, lots of transplants, lots of things going on, but uh, bighorn sheep are at late 1800 population levels right now. Was anybody, okay, in
0: 1960 in Texas, after the last one vanished, was it, what, a day later they started recovery? I mean, were they they already paying attention to it as they were on their way out?
3: Well, there was a guy hired in the 40s. And uh, this is a guy by the name of Birch Carson. He was hired to document the decline of bighorn sheep in Texas. And so today, well, I, I'll, give, I'll give you my experience. I, I was a younger guy then, and and was hiking through the mountains. And was actually uh, we we did and still guide all of our own sheep hunts. So I was preparing. Uh, for a first had a sheep hunter coming here. The st-
0: the, you mean the state guy? State, state of Texas, yes. And you guys give out how many tags every year?
3: Well, it it varies. Now, now 15, 16, 17 tags every year. So we've come a long ways.
0: So if you draw a bighorn tag in Texas, you go out and hunt with a... You go out and are guided by a state biologist or... Yeah,
3: well, if you buy a state tag, uh, there are also private landowner tags. That's a little okay. bit different. Yep. Uh, some some hunters prefer to bring their own their own guide which which is fine uh we like that too um it makes us no difference but uh so anyway you you asked me about the did, did they see it coming and and um texas was no different than the rest of the states where you you hear about the domestic sheep issues and we lost our sheep for the very same reasons and so a guy by the name of Birch Carson was hired in the 40s to document the disappearance of bighorn sheep in Texas. And so I was getting ready for a sheep hunt, and I was hiking along. It was in January, and the, it was pretty cool cool in the mountains. And um, so I was, I was walking down the ridge, and I decided to get off the ridge, and I started hiking down a deer trail. And so I w- walked the, the deer trail for a ways, and I came into an opening, a small bowl in the bottom of these three just three knobs around, and and it got still. The wind stopped blowing, and it got still. And I thought, man, this would be a great place to eat my lunch. Took my pack frame off, sat out on the ground. I looked over on the ground. It said there was a carving in the rock, and it said W.B. Carson Sheep Inspector, nineteen forty-three. And so it became a hobby of mine. Uh, I spent a lot of time by myself, and so I started looking for these things. And every time I thought I was the only human being to ever see this. I would look around on the ground, and I would find another carving, and it would say "Sheep Inspector uh, Burt W. B. Carson." And so I found caves the guy lived in. There's one. There's a cave in the Texas mountains where the guy's clothes are still hanging in the cave today. And so, so he documented the decline.
0: Oh, that's nuts, man! That's yeah. like Boone and Boone's Day. They'd always write their names on. Oh, it's it's carving it's it's in interesting. the rocks, carving the trees.
3: It's interesting history. There, there's a. Uh, a guy named Bob Anderson, uh, you guys are probably familiar with, great Rams one two three. Yeah, uh, he became interested in in Birch Carson, and so he uh, he actually wrote a book he's got one i wrote the forward for his book and and uh he never has published it he hadn't done anything with it so he's trying to figure out who his audience was but it's called something like the desert wanderer or something like that so the guy was a taxidermist and just interesting history world war ii veteran uh was injured in world war ii and came back and hiked those mountains with a limp and so uh you know pretty rough country so uh so short time later in the mid fifties there was a cooperative agreement developed between the the uh at that time the Texas Game Fish and Oyster Commission, um uh Booney Crockett Club, Arizona Game and Fish Department, uh, uh I'm trying to remember who else, uh, Wildlife Management Institute. Uh we brought sheep in from Arizona and uh try and in in the early years there uh you know, in the early 1900s, like most jurisdictions, it was people focused on protections. Uh, there were, like in Texas, 1903, there was a hunting prohibition enacted. And so then then in the mid-50s, it was propagation. Uh, you know, there's always a joke running around in those days. Most states, the Desert Bighorn Council was formed in the 50s because every state was in the same boat. And uh, some people would have... You know, they only had two sheep left, and they knew them by name. You know, and Bob didn't feel so well. It was it was kind of the the joke, the, the running joke, and so, so anyway, so propagation efforts were implemented in the mid nineteen fifties, and and since that time, uh, uh, two hundred seven wild sheep were translocated to Texas, uh,
0: coming out of Arizona.
3: No, different places. I'm okay. sorry, and I think I, I think I have those numbers wrong. It's more like it's 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 uh. I think uh, a total of 107 came from Nevada, 31 from Arizona, six from Mexico, and two from Utah. So that's the lineage of of today's desert bighorn populations in Texas. And so, uh, so we worked together. We we traded in the early years. We traded Arizona uh, for pronghorn. They they had they were short on pronghorn at that time. Texas had plenty of pronghorn, so we would swap animals and. And more recently I, I I can tell you I was at a, in in those days the it was a Fanaz convention and people were coming by my booth from the state of Nevada and some of them were pretty upset with Texas and I couldn't figure out why, what the what the story was and and I thought, man, just having a bad day and so later on I I uh was reading a newspaper and the headlines with letters about three inches big said, "State of Nevada trades turkeys for bighorn sheep," <laughs> or, uh, and, and so the the the, the 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 Nevadans were not real happy about that trade and and so. But uh, if it if it were not for that, then none of us would have any wildlife. Um, and so, as as time went on, in our case, uh, what's interesting about that is the landowners. You know, we had problems with with uh, disease issues in, in the 30s and, and uh, lost all of our sheep later on. It was a slow progression. We lost those sheep. And so we worked. Texas is a private landowner state, uh, 97% privately owned. But uh, domestic sheep, landowners raised domestic sheep. And then later on, the land, the very landowners that we worked with that, where the problems occurred years ago, are the very same landowners that helped us restore sheep today. Their descendants, yeah. and so we did that together. And so, like I say, today we're probably eighteen hundred animals. Um, so we've surpassed the late the the late eighteen hundred population levels, and and numbers continue to span uh, expand. Populations continue to grow, and so so far so good. Uh, but it only took you know sixty years or so, or seventy years. For that to happen start figuring it out
0: yeah we'll we'll dig into that whole story a whole bunch man it's interesting uh then Giannis, of course go Mm -hmm.
1: ahead um scott peckham i'm the big game ecologist for the confederated tribes of the umatilla indian reservation in northeast oregon and southeast washington so i work on anything purview of the or the big game headline and uh so wear a lot of hats i should Um,
0: tell you all about the elk tag i drew that would be good I've, I heard the, the extremest extreme <laughs> southeast corner of the state. Okay, you know it real well. You got Not some, way, you got well some waypoints.
1: Um, <laughs> I've seen some big animals in that part of the country. What I want to but I know people that really know it really well. I know the sheep country better than the elk country there, but I do see big bulls in there when I am doing sheep work. So,
0: so you you focus on sheep in that area?
1: uh Typically, yeah. In, in southeast washington i 'm usually up there working on the, sort of the hell 's Canyon initiative work that 's going on Gotcha. Um, so and, you you back up
0: like like you inform and back up the tribe 's perspective on big game management exactly that 's interesting and, and because that 's interesting because you 're actually looking at two different states
1: yes, yeah, almost three, but yeah, two, both southeast washington, so there 's three tribes under under one treaty. Um, the Walla Walla Cayuse and Umatilla, um, and they their, their traditional territory exp- expanded the, the state boundaries there. So most of the northern Blue Mountains uh, over towards um, past La Grande, Oregon, down south towards John Day, so parts of various basins. So what's your, like, what's your professional mandate then? To basically protect, conserve, and restore big game populations and their habitat. That's our program mission.
0: And that's, so, a, that's a directive coming from those tribes?
1: Yes. We have a first foods mission for our Department of Natural Resources, which is fairly well staffed. We have about a hundred employees, and DNR itself, our wildlife program is pretty small, about nine employees. Um, but yeah, under the big game mantra, we are—that's our directive—to protect, restore, and enhance habitat and populations.
0: And I'm guessing you must coordinate with states and Fed
1: all the time. Yep, yep. we work on because basically a lot of the the wildlife habitat where the treaty hunting occurs where the, the rights are or they're allowed to, to uh, exercise their treaty hunting right is on federal public lands so gotcha. we work with the, the land managers of blm and forest service and then we work with the states obviously because they tend to do more of the population level management so we coordinate with them pretty closely
0: yeah like the feds got the, the feds are administering a lot of the landscape but the states are administering
1: a lot of the wildlife on the landscape. exactly yeah. yeah so decisions about land land use and land management planning we're very involved in that with the with the Forest Service and BLM. And you get to spend a lot of time looking at sheep. I do. Yeah. Is very that, is that very high, fortunate. Is that a high priority? Um, I'd say yes, just conservation wise. Yeah. Um, the the tribe is is very interested in expanding um, populations of sheep. We have a lot of historically good sheep habitat in, in those parts of the country. Um, you've been, I think you've been to Hell's Canyon. Oh yeah, I mean, I've gone out yeah. looking at bighorns in Hell's yeah. Canyon. Yeah, yeah. And that, those populations have struggled um, so there's a lot of good work that could be done, and so I think that's where our interest is. Um, obviously, there's you've probably heard about the mule deer issues that are going on. We have we do have declines in mule deer populations, and but elk are pretty stable, large populations of elk in the Blue Mountains, which you'll get to see. Um, but yeah, sheep is a, sort of our biggest conservation concern on, on on the big game front.
0: I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Was that because things are getting worse, or because they could be so much better?
1: Um, I think in our corner of the world there it's we're sort of a a stagnant stagnant sort of population that has leveled off so i think we could there's a lot we can improve i think we can make some gains for sure gotcha for sure but we're not we haven't had a a disease a large die-off in several years but we're we're only a little ways away from one we're always on the, the the cusp so i think there's a lot of work we can do and and this kind of uh forum is a good place to discuss that
0: gotcha Go ahead,
2: Steve Gray Thornton. I'm the president and CEO. Um, we're here, obviously, at the at the world headquarters, but we also maintain offices in Cody. We have um, an education coordinator in Nevada. Uh, Clay is remote in Texas. Uh, we've got a lobbyist in Washington D.C., and then our Montana uh, conservation director is also in Germany. So we we base international operations out of Germany. We work in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan.
0: Isn't it funny how everyone hates lobbyists, but lobbyists can come from any like people just like are like, oh, a lobbyist, and they, you register that must be negative. But to think that there are like conservation lobbyists working yeah, in D.C., you people, know, people always envision a lobbyist as like some guy out to do something evil. You know well, he I mean? does, he does,
2: <laughs> he does smoke cigars, so he, he he plays, you know, he plays that lobbyist role well. yeah you know, we, <laughs> we, we but he's we, out <laughs> <laughs> there,
0: lobbying on behalf of wildlife. Right? He is, and he's <laughs> lobbying on behalf
2: of uh, you know, wild sheep and wild sheep restoration. But you know, we called him our advocate and and our legislative affairs director and. And finally, just, just just call me a lobbyist that 's what everyone knows that I am, so you know we just cut to the chase, and that 's what he is we were just I was just back with him uh two weeks ago, spent three days uh, advocating you know advocating for bighorn sheep programs and thin horn sheep programs so.
0: so when you when you guys are doing that like when you're down in d c um What are, are you meeting with, do you tend to be meeting with individual politicians or do you tend to be meeting like more on the agency level?
2: Both. So we we meet with the federal agencies, so... All the land management, yeah, all, you know, the yes. US, U.S. Forest Service. Most bighorn sheep live on uh, U.S. Forest Service land. About and Clay, what eighty eighty somewhat percent of bighorn sheep live on uh, on the forest. Seventy eighty percent. Um, BLM, interesting enough, has huge holdings in Alaska. Alaska's got twenty five percent of all doll sheep and thin horn sheep in, in North America. So pretty pretty huge population there. Forty to fifty thousand doll sheep. Um, so we, we we you know we meet with the BLM, we meet with the Forest Service. At times we'll meet with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. At times we'll meet with the National Park Service, and then on the Hill we'll we'll meet with uh, representatives and senators and their staff. So um, pretty pretty broad base. the The issues that we're dealing with are primarily land use issues. Um some grazing issues and um separation issues between domestic sheep and bighorn sheep and now even thin horn sheep.
0: Yeah. That that that's what I'd like to get to and spend some time on because I think that's that's kind of seems like where so much of the conversation is right now around sheep, but I want to do a little bit of backing up and I'll let you guys you guys just kind of decide by making quick glances among each other to see who should handle what. But I want to, like, really quickly bring people up to speed on just, like, sheep taxonomy, which I think can be a little bit confusing. Um, We don't need to go global. We'll just keep it North America. But is a fair – is, like, when you say, like, bighorn, thin horn, is that a fair – is that a fair – if you're going to take all of our country's sheep or U.S. and Canada – it makes some sort of division. It seems like people start with bighorn, thin horn. You bet.
2: So, so you have, you know, let's, let's take North America as, as Mexico, U.S., and Canada. Okay, perfect. Um, so in, in Mexico, you have the desert bighorn sheep. Um, in, in the lower 48, you have the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep and the desert bighorn sheep. Then we've got, you know, there's kind of uh, um, splitters and lumpers. There's, yes. there's some divisions that come off of it. There's a California bighorn sheep that's really a Rocky Mountain, and it didn't come from California. It came from British Columbia, of all places. Um, there's a Sierra Nevada uh, bighorn sheep. There's a Peninsula desert bighorn sheep. So there's, there's a bunch of kind of subspecies, but the bottom line is there's desert bighorn sheep, Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, and then as we go north, You've got the stone sheep, which is primarily in northern British Columbia.
0: And that's a thin horn sheep.
2: That's a thin horn. And then the, the white sheep is the dolls. So the stone sheep range in B.C. Um, depends on the research you're looking at, but there's some new DNA studies that are, that are pushing to the point that that's really the only place they are. Uh, and that the stone sheep, and we still call them that, but the stone sheep that are in, in the Yukon Territory are actually fanon sheep, or just a a cross, if you will, uh, and dark paleage of a cross between a well, white sheep, a doll sheep, and the stone sheep. And the doll sheep are in Alaska, Yukon, and Northwest.
5: Territory. Or just the color phase of the dolls. Yeah, paleage, which really irritates people. Oh, because it- if you you know you think you got your four North American wild sheep, right? Like that's a big thing. You want to get Weird. your desert, your Rocky Mountain, your stones, and your dolls. But, you know, they're starting to say, and Clay was explaining this to me earlier, you know, now they're going, well, maybe that dolls is just, that, or that stones, what you think is the stones is actually just a color phase of an actual doll. So it'd be like you going around and saying, man, yeah, I've, I've shot a black bear and a grizzly bear, and then finding out actually... Your black bear was, or your, what you think was your grizzly bear was just a brown-faced black bear. Yeah, yeah, I got you. But, but like, when you get up, I wanna, I'm, man, I'm
0: confusing myself now. I want stay, to stay below the, the U.S.-Canada border for a minute. When you hear of the California, the California's Iraqi, and then you hear in the old days that people had this idea that the Audubon mm-hmm. was rocky,
2: Right. In the Missouri River Breaks. We actually have an Audubon in our uh, conference room. Now extinct, although there's some debate on that with with DNA, you know, the, the DNA studies that we can do now and the research, you know, the, the the samples we can use. Um, there's even some conflict of whether or not the Audubon was truly a, uh, a separate subspecies. That's what I was
0: reading about recently. Yeah, but yeah. the
2: bottom line is we've we've repatriated bighorn sheep into the area that the Audubon was, gotcha. the Missouri River breaks, which is kind of the classic, beautiful, big. Uh, rocky mountain sheep of of montana
0: and then so now jump up into canada and going up into alaska like at the time of european contact would it just looked like one continuous string of sheep that just happened to get whiter the more farther north you went or were those populations like broken up
2: no they were broken up and um you know, there is, there is certainly a difference between a bighorn sheep and a thin horn sheep. Um, so the, the thin horn sheep, and I don't know exactly what latitude they're, they're above, but, um, you know, those, the, the, the stones and the dolls definitely look different than, than a Rocky Mountain bighorn. The Rocky Mountain bighorn are down in southern B.C., um, you know, the, 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 the front of the Rockies in Alberta, and then basically go down through the Dakotas, uh, a little bit in Nebraska. Um, clay was just in Oklahoma. We now have, uh, bighorn sheep in Oklahoma. Um, and then desert in Texas. And then you kind of, as you, you go west, um, and, and, and further south, you get into the deserts. But there's some, some states that have both. Nevada has the Nelson bighorn, Rocky Mountain bighorn, and Colorado, or I'm sorry, California bighorn.
3: But we really treat those, we treat the California and the Rocky as the same if if you look at the work and how it was done you know everybody named something in in the 1800s they everybody threw a a label on it and and then there was a guy named cowan about 1940 or so uh that that actually maybe the 60s i can't remember exactly but anyway he did a lot of the original work and they were measuring skulls and horns and and looking at different ways well in the 90s, a, a, a Rob Ramey and John Wayhausen, uh did some of that same work. And when it all came out, it, I mean, the, I guess the short, and I, I tend to think simple, is sheep or sheep. Uh, and, and they described stones and dolls to the north. So it, really two, two species, uh, Rocky Mountain or, or big horn sheep to the south and, and uh, thin horns to the north. And then the subspecies, they described three, Rocky Mountains, they said Californias are the same. And there's lots of discussion, a lot of states don't agree, and a lot of, a lot of folks go round and round over that, but then there was Sierra Nevada and deserts and uh, but there were they were measuring orbitals and taking various gold measurements, and uh, this will be ironed out very soon the The genomics work that's occurring right now will answer every one of these questions. So, just stand by, it's coming,
0: yeah, it's interesting to watch the way the genetics work has changed because when I was working on uh, I was working on my book american buffalo and and you read you know back a hundred years, and people had there were seven different kinds you know, and it was mostly just different people not orchestrating their activities, but were seeing something somewhere and giving it a name and seeing something somewhere giving it a name, yep, and then always very eager to identify uh populations that weren't there anymore and have it be that it was something entirely different.
3: Well, in Texas, they, uh, Texana, uh, uh, they thought they had a different subspecies in Texas. It was most likely Mexicana, that subspecies. So it, it wasn't unique, but you'll still hear people talk about that.
0: Are there, any in, uh, are there any places in Canada where a bighorn and a thin-horned sheep would run into each other?
3: you know i i i've thought about that in fact we were kicking around that that very thing earlier and and it's uh honestly no but again sheep or sheep um you know they they uh for for what we know the chances of them crossing paths are probably slim to none just the the habitat that they use and those sorts of things but uh
0: they're like they're geographically separated yeah, exactly by barriers that they're
3: not likely to right. cross exactly
0: yeah You guys have some cool graphics in here that show what the, where the pop, like the population distribution now relative to when things were really dire and bad relative to when things were like relatively unexploited to what year do you have to go back, um, before you hit like what would have been kind of like pre contact baseline. Meaning no extirpated, like no extirpated, region, no no regional extirpations.
3: You know that's that's a very tough question. There was a uh, Seton in the nineteen twenty nine. Ernest uh, Thompson, uh, yeah, Ernest, yeah, Ernest Seaton. Yeah, yeah, you know he, what were the numbers one point five to two, 2, 2 million, million something yeah. something. Yeah, like but those that. guys <laughs> paid fast and loose with uh, numbers. Oh, too, oh man. exactly. Yeah. There's no doubt about it, and yeah. and there are folks today that will that will argue with those numbers are a lot more effective at arguing those numbers than I am. Or, or at least the confidence interval
1: is really wide on well, that.
3: Well, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, that, that's a tough thing, but you know, if you, if you try to read, uh, you know, some of the accounts, Lewis and Clark's and you know, how much did they, you know, they talked about many, many animals. I don't know what that means. Uh, but if you, you know, all the way you, you, you can trace some of that, it's particularly desert bighorns, uh, you know, 1700s and things like that. When, the conquistadors were traveling. You know the, the, the missions, the priests describe what they observed, and it's, so it's pretty interesting, but the numbers are always tough. Uh, you know, If you look at, in the 50s, uh, what we do know is that numbers had probably declined to about 15,000, 17,000 animals, something like that. So they got pretty low. So unless Seton
0: was wildly off, there was still a big reduction. There
3: was, a, there was a, far more than there were today.
0: You know, in, in terms of counting numbers, you guys familiar with how for a long time the fashionable number for Bison was $60 million? And, like, you look into where that number came from. Well, Seaton kind of, like, collated the whole thing, but it came from basically a big herd going by. It seemed to take days to go by. Later, Colonel Dodge of Dodge City Infamy has a conversation with another guy who saw the same thing. And, hell, he must have been three miles away. And through this, (laughs) right, comes this like wild estimation of how many there must be. Yep. So it is frustrating. I'm reading this book right now, Grizzlies in the Southwest. And the first part of the book is trying to collate all the cases where someone identified one. But you get into just terminology. Yep. And being like, is this, what is this guy talking about? Like, what is, you know, whoever's keeping records during the coronado expedition what is he talking about when he says x is I, that what he means yeah you know? i
3: don't know i'll send you a story of the only grizzly bear killed in texas uh, <laughs> i just read
0: about that did you yeah in the davis, davis Mountain? mountains right yeah. yeah yeah i just read that it's story. in the
3: smithsonian the skull
0: is. oh okay yeah. yeah so i could see that it'd be like exceedingly difficult to get a sense of what was where but you could picture that I mean, is it, like, like it's fair to say, like like you take like Nevada, you take Montana, was like more of it was sheep country than not.
3: Oh yeah, if you look at, if you look at the mountains in Nevada and look how it's laid out, and compare that to say Texas, you know you can see just only the far west part of Texas. And if you look at at where Scott works, uh, you know just just some of the the heritage that Native Americans have passed down, the the stories and pictographs. We have a pretty good. Could I, good idea where they occurred? Uh, again, that, that's
0: interesting. Just representational art, huh? Yeah, like these people are drawing them, so yeah, they must be familiar with them.
3: Same same story in Texas. I can show you pictographs of, of bighorn sheep in Texas. That, uh, but but numbers, we you know, it's 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 an educated guess. Yeah. That's for sure. To, I think it's a fair assumption to say that we had a lot of sheep. Yeah.
1: And they were their distribution was wide. Their their the use of them culturally and and for materials and food was widespread. People were the first explorers were encountering big encountering bighorn bows out way into Nebraska and out into the plains. The plains Indians were using bows made out of bighorn sheep horns. Now, wasn't so,
5: it most common though? Like right, yeah, out of the park. because yes. they, cause they the were coming water. Yep,
1: they were coming. Yeah. basically being traded for and, and you know the pictograph record is very widespread. So I think it's. It's a fair assumption to say we had a lot of sheep. They were widely distributed. Um, a lot there was a lot of cultures that were built around sheep. Um, and obviously, I think you've probably read Journal of a Trapper, yeah. Osborne Ruffles. I mean, some of his descriptions. This is a guy that's seen Yellowstone Park area in its sort of in prime form and using descriptions of immense numbers of mountain sheep in the winter time. So, like, I think someone that uses the word immense numbers He's of not mountain seen sheep. A dozen. No, <laughs> this isn't a herd of hundred or fifteen sheep on the side of a hill. It's it, the winter range was numerous there was a lot of sheep there have least. you
0: read francis parkman's oregon trail i have not so he 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 was a historian and he wrote like at the time the definitive history of the french and indian war but he had health problems and was told to come out and spend time out in the west and he comes out and travels on the oregon trail and i think this is 1846 he actually winds up traveling with the Oglala Sioux probably was in the same camp with crazy horse when crazy horse was 13 they go up into the black hills to get lodgepole pine for tent lodge poles the guys he's traveling with get onto a big herd of bighorns and kill a bunch by throwing rocks down at them so you get it like that's not two that's like a size there must be like sizable groups if that's your hunting strategies to hurl rocks down and successfully kill a bunch
1: Yep. those those kind of accounts is I think we're piecing all that that information together. Cultural accounts, early explorer accounts. We know what their range is, and modern day we know how many sheep of the habitat can support. So we can kind of piece it together. You know,
0: like what the numbers might right. be like. Right. So if you if you had to express like how bad it got, what's the best way to express how bad it got? Because you could is it because you don't know the beginning number, so it's hard to do it numerically. Yeah. Like, how do you guys think about it when you think about restoration? Is it Filling in the map, or is it achieving numbers?
2: Nah, it's a little bit of both. If you, you know, you look and you, you're referencing this map that we've got in our in our conference room, and you know, let's say if we're using Seton's numbers of you know one to two million sheep, let's use a lower number of one million. Um, you know, throughout North America, we reduce those in the 1960s down to twenty five thousand. So
0: twenty five thousand in what's now the U S. or what's US, now the US, US, US uh,
2: all of North North America U S. Canada Mexico Bighorns so. though. Okay, so,
0: yeah. so not, 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 not
2: like, the thin horns. The thin horn range is actually still, distribution still pretty much the same. Yeah, because they haven't come
0: up against like the obstacles, right? No,
2: they haven't. Uh, and, that's, and that's what you're trying to prevent. But, but the bighorns did. So you know, you're looking at, you know, if it's 500 or 1 million or 1.5 or $2 million, we, or 2 million um, sheep, we reduced those numbers down to 25,000 by the late 1960s. Today, we're at about 85,000 bighorn sheep. In, in Canada, U.S. and Mexico, so, they so got, I mean it's they been they got a good, good restoration 25,000 25, in all of North
0: America and, and and at the I want to talk about why it got that way, but at the low point with sheep, were you then finding that you had states? I know we talked about Texas. Were there multiple states that had completely run out? You
2: bet. You bet. You know, you, if you look at you know some of the data that we'll show, you know we'll. We'll reference remnant population. Some were just gone. Texas gone. Uh, Nevada was down to a remnant population. They're a they're an absolute incredible success story. You know they had they had a hundred or two hundred. You know what does remnant mean? Two hundred sheep. They're up to eleven thousand desert bighorns right now. They probably got about twelve thousand to thirteen thousand bighorn sheep in Nevada today.
0: And they were down to what's called a remnant remnant which is in, in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, which would be sub one hundred. You bet. So
2: it's pretty amazing.
0: Um, what states were like the big holdouts?
2: Wyoming strong, really. Like so, the uh, Wyoming, Wyoming stayed strong. Wyoming did pretty well. Um, I think Montana did pretty well. Like uh, hanging Colorado on Colorado, pretty well, but still,
0: who was who was housing? Uh, what states provided the last refugia for the deserts? Desert bighorns, like what states would had like wound up. When all the smoke cleared, Clay, Arizona,
2: Arizona. Uh, New Mexico didn't no, no, yeah. no,
3: New Mexico was down. So they were way uh, down. Pretty, pretty much, pretty much, Mexico and and, and Arizona, California. You know, they. I, I don't remember how low the numbers got in California. Uh, Nevada's got. I mean, most of them are remnant. It, it was rough. And Mexico held on to some. Mexico did. In um, the Sierra Madre, where, you know, most of it was just. Well, in the Baja. Oh, they, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, Baja, Sonora part
0: of the country, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, because Baja, man, like as far as like uh, re- representational art, Yes. Baja
3: North, yeah. Then, you,
0: I've been spent time down there, and, man. There's tons of pictographs, oh, yeah. pictographs, oh, yeah. big big horns and mule deer, you know.
3: And they've and they've held their own even today. I mean, they've they do pretty well. Um, I mean, there are a lot of sheep uh in sonora alone I, I i can't remember the numbers exactly but there are probably in sonora mexico alone probably 7500 sheep just in that state and then in sonora you, yeah yeah we hunt down there i never run into one must be in the wrong part of the
0: <laughs> um what was the drug like i kind of already know this answer because i know it was like disease and pot hunting but like what made it so bad like how did it get so bad
3: well there were there were lots of things that a combination of things uh, civilization uh, railroads Just were moving in a, in through. a
0: blanket term
3: yeah uh,
0: <laughs> and all the wonders that it brings
3: yeah and, and Scott can speak to the stuff a little bit further north and but as far as the, the stuff in in the south you know if you read Texas history, the railroad came through and you'd read accounts where you know they were feeding railroad workers. Uh, and a guy would hunt meat for the railroads, and he would hit, the, hit hit where our prime habitat is, and he would say, I had them in a box canyon, and I got every one of them. And, and so he would take the meat back, feed railroad workers. But it, it was disease issues and, and competition for forage and uh, limited water and forage with, with domestic livestock that, it, that had come in later. And, and people were trying to feed their families. It was tough places to, to make a living so if you, if you
0: break out, like, let's say you break out market hunting. Um, and who was that famous uh, photographer that used to work out of Miles City? Uh, Huffman, L.A. Huffman. He, he was taking pictures in the early 1880s of market hunter camps where they had just all kinds of bighorns lined up. that They're killing along the Yellowstone. But if you're going to take out, if you're going to divide it, like, ha- let's say you had habitat issues. Okay, so grazing competition, water, whatever. Market hunting and disease are—are are they tiered out, or are they all just equal players?
3: Oh well, no, it's uh, if typically if you if you're trying to piece the story together that Scott described, you typically look at land use history and you look at look at how things occurred or what might have occurred. And today, the the greatest obstacle that we face is disease and so chances are that was the greatest threat the thing that caused the most problems in in the 1800s uh along with those other things but but in in my view it would be diseases uh, and competition for forage um, and limited water in the desert environment anyway
1: yeah that's totally fair um just to give you a perspective like if you think about it and in terms of grazing and um, just use a northeast Oregon example in that, that corner of, of Oregon, uh, Wallawa County, where Hell's Canyon is located. There was, about the turn of the century, there was th- 300,000 sheep grazing in that county. No. Uh, yes.
0: Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. With Mint Mobile's limited time deal, and get three months of premium wireless service for fifteen bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just fifteen bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/meat eater. That's mintmobile.com/meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com/meat eater.
5: $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speeds lower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs and here's one of those buddies max not the dog but the
5: buddy i've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states u.s and canada different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees and it just doesn't stop working i'm a fan for life
0: get 20 percent off your first purchase using code meat eater so go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. and after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures, summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With 3 times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus 8 vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more.
1: Yep. So th- there was an immense number of sheep, domestic sheep, yeah, yeah, in, up. sorry, 300 domestics grazing in Walla County. So we, that was a, a the big. County big the county alone had 300,000 domestic yep. sheep. Yep. So we are you know, obviously it was great grazing land for domestic sheep. And so people were grazing. There, were, there was no Taylor Grazing Act. It was sort of a free for all on the public land system, which is, you know, probably not fully established at that time. Um, and. We had a lot of a lot of domestics right in the bighorn habitat.
0: So we should probably talk about the disease, like disease. When we say disease carried them off, is it a host of diseases that hits bighorns or is it a disease that hits bighorns?
1: It is a disease complex. So there's, Clay can fill in the gaps, but there's- based on our last decade of research, I mean, is, it's been an evolving story over time where people are you know, we're constantly learning new information all the time as our techniques get, and science get better and, and uh, our experimentation gets better and our insights get, get, get better. Um, but what all the research points to now is it's one particular bacteria that these, our, our North American sheep did not evolve with. So they, they're hosted by the domestic species, when they come in contact with each other, the bighorn sheep contract that bacteria, they're no longer able to fight off other infections. So it compromises their cilia and their in their trachea. So they are unable to move other bacteria out and they succumb to basically pneumonia, but from other, other, it's a you know, a my, polymicrobial disease is the, the term. So they're very naive to this disease, The the, MO, it's called mycoplasma ovi pneumoniae so we call it MOV for short and just because it's a the, mouth what's the term file. for short MOV period OV M-O-V. okay
0: um and it's and this, this is a disease that seems to have originated in, in old ro-
1: old world sheep in, in Europe and yep.
0: they perhaps were exposed to it for they had 10,000 they had years evolved or, with it yeah. correct
1: so they they carry it they're they're not clinically affected by. it. We don't see the the same symptoms that we do in bighorns, where they're coughing or having nasal sinus discharge. Um, so it doesn't appear to have a strong population level effect, or has no population level effect on domestic sheep. So some lambs will succumb to it, you know, and a once they're kind of getting close to weaning, but. Our bighorn sheep, lambs, will be infected early on, and it's, it's very fatal. And strain, there's, there's many strains. They're all, they have different severity in the reactions within bighorn populations. So it's, it's a complicated disease issue, and that's why it's taken us so long to sort this all out. So was, was this disease hitting bighorns before anybody knew
0: that this disease For was sure. hitting bighorns? For sure, yeah. It was just it was like, I don't know what happened to
1: them all. I mean, if you think about the habitat that these animals live in, how frequently do we, how, how well studied our herds now with our, with our level of technology and our dedication but back in the 1800s? I don't, know, I don't know how many people were looking at them.
2: Yeah, Steve, you, know, you, you, be gone. you look, um, uh, you know, a, a great analogy would be looking at what we did to Native American tribes with smallpox. It's, you know, it's so similar um and and when we talk about mycoplasma pneumonia as a setup agent um you know kind of in in, in lay terms even though they're not the same you know it, it, it's kind of hiv in sheep uh you know hiv is an immune def- deficiency this is not this is a bacterium it's a path a pathogen but it's a setup agent so um you, you know you joe was 32 years old and you heard he died of pneumonia and you go my god you know joe was 32 years old i was a 32 year old guy die of pneumonia oh well you know he had aids he had hiv and compromised his immune system and he got pneumonia and died okay very similar to what's happening with sheep as, as scott had pointed out that the mycoplasma pneumonia or MOV, lays down the cilia in the esophagus uh and allows other other bugs, other pathogens, other 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 bacteria to get down into the lungs. They can't cough it out. The cilia is not moving it out. They get sick and then we you know what we used to just say is, well they died of pneumonia. Well actually they probably died of something else, but MOV, is as, as we're able to study it more and more and more, MOV was present. There's there's a litany of other pathogens, uh Manheimia hemolytica, there's there's new research that Uh, is looking at um, uh, nasal tumors is so it's you know these these sheep which which a mountain sheep when you look at where they live uh, in some of the harshest climates in North America uh, some of the most unique climates in North America uh, the sad thing is is from a from a respiratory standpoint they're pretty darn weak. Um, our vice president of conservation, Kevin Hurley says it, I think pretty, pretty succinctly says the damn things are born looking for a place to die. Um, so there, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's challenging. Um, it is a disease complex and, and every time we, uh, we, you know, Wild Sheep Foundation has spent millions and millions of dollars into disease research. We endow a chair of Wild Sheep Disease at Washington State University, um, Every rock we overturn that we think we've got the solution, we, ah, this, is, this is it. This is now, oh, there's four other rocks underneath it that we, un, un, you know, unturn or overturn those. And there's four more other questions that we don't know the answer to.
0: So I, I want to explore the timeline a little bit on, on the numbers collapsing, but no one really knew where we started. No one had done like this exhaustive analysis of where sheep exist and how many there were. But just like any, anyone who's paying attention can't miss the fact that they're vanishing. At what point do, do people, like this organization or other individuals or state agencies, at what point do people go like, wow, we need to like get on top of this and start taking some step? And at that time, did they, were they then aware of what was causing the problem? Or were people doing restoration and then all the sheep die again? without even knowing that the real issue was disease, thinking it might have been something else? Is that, is that, does that question make
2: sense? It, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, that's a good and, question. And, and Clay and, and Scott can dream in, but you know, we, were, we were probably putting sick sheep into clean sheep, so we were, we were making some errors back just then. Out of we, the, just, we just didn't know. No one knew We didn't know that, that that source herd had mycoplasma oven pneumonia. Uh, and so we plopped in, no doubt, in in transplants. We pro- plopped in sick sheep on top of clean sheep.
0: So that became the like, like, that became the primary restoration tool was transplanting sheep.
3: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. The early years was protection. Every state: 1905, 1910, 1903, Every state implemented something. Uh, the first translocation occurred in nineteen twenty two. Since then, there have been probably uh, close to fifteen hundred separate operations uh, removing somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-two thousand animals uh, that have been moved, going from, back from one a, from place to another. One place to another. So, and, in
0: nineteen oh three, in Texas, they're like, "It's bad enough you can't kill one,"
3: and it wasn't just cheap. Keep that in mind. It was mule deer and pronghorn and and all wildlife in those days i mean everything was suffering yeah but uh but it was it, there's no doubt about it The 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 tool the translocations was that was the tool uh you know we would go we worked with uh Nevada Department of Wildlife and we would we would trap sheep on the landscape i would be on the side of a mountain we would trap sheep uh we had a trailer a double decker trailer fill that trailer full as many as uh, many sheep as they would give us and then, as fast as we could get you, back you give to Texas, turkey. give them a handful of turkeys. <laughs> and, and, uh, no, no, uh, yeah, give, give them what, whatever it was they wanted because we were beggars. Uh, that was <laughs> the bottom know. line. We God were beggars joking, at that right? time. So, so anyway, go back to Texas and 24 hours later, dumping them on the landscape. Well, we were drawing blood samples, but we would never wait for the results of those samples. Uh, so if something would have happened, the cat would have been out. Of out of the bag by then yeah so now now we we sample source and recipient populations in advance and we look at those kind of things so we're a lot smarter in the way we do business
0: that's a horrible thought to think of just out of out of in a very excusable form of ignorance to spend that time and energy
3: oh there's no doubt we can go and and
0: infect a clean herd
3: yeah there's no doubt about it because if you look at in uh the, the, the disease itself, it, you know the, it, it can only come from a live animal, and there's, there's no doubt about it. Now that can be domestic sheep, domestic goats, but it can also be bighorn sheep, and it can also be uh, wild goats.
0: so uh, that, that bacteria doesn't do well laying on the dirt.
3: No, it does not. it, does, it, has to come, it comes from a live source so
0: but we've uh, again, you, you, how, how close? Like, let's talk about trans- let's talk about the transmission for a minute.
3: I don't know. It, uh, I'm gonna let a little God. bit of a rabbit hole, but yeah. we can, yeah, it, because it's not we well don't. understood.
0: I'm just talking about like, okay, you got a sick. Let's not even bring in yeah. domestic they sheep. They don't in. have to touch noses. Let's okay. just put them. exactly. So let's not like, even bring we, domestic sheep. But two, two, two big have, horns. If the
1: pens are too close together, they you know WSU has a, a captive herd and they got them. I think one of the early trials they got a little too close to their clean sheep from the sick sheep.
0: We're talking inches or feet or yards. Feet
3: yards you're talking about in in some cases maybe kilometers uh well if
0: that's the case then what do you mean then
3: like what do you mean it has to go from
0: sheep to sheep because it's just aerosol yeah well if
3: it is that's let's go back to the if if you look at the if the issues associated with this disease i mean when it when when it comes down to it all all wildlife they adapt to the various pathogens that they're introduced to okay. in, in some form or fashion and so how it affects bighorn sheep is you either have a complete die-off i mean they just do terrible uh or you see it where you know a mother will pass down antibodies to to lambs and and at first you know when you, when you see them uh, the first few weeks of life they seem to do pretty well but about eight weeks eight to 12 weeks uh, something like that. Then, then you start seeing issues and then you have complete lamb die offs. So, so in other words, you have complete die offs, then you have no recruitment for decades. And then the other part of that is that you have some sheep that for whatever reason they don't die and they go from herd to herd, from this one to the that typhoid one. Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary. They, that, that, so they become a carrier
0: who's not affected. It is a
3: carrier that sheds that disease to other populations. So big horn sheep move.
0: Yeah. They I move.
3: Mean, and the other thing is they are long-lived species,
1: generally, in the absence of disease. You know, ewes can live close to 20 years. And rams are, you know, kind of the 10 to 12 is a, long, a long-lived long ram. So some of these particular carriers can be alive for a long time, moving around and keeping that disease in the herd. And it's not able to fade out.
0: How much do you guys see... Uh- how, how much have you seen bighorns move?
1: A long ways. A long Not long like
0: way. the, yeah, don't give me the... No, I'm always interested in the crazy number, but give okay. me the normal so number.
1: The, the normal number. And then, so, like, then hit me with the crazy number. Okay, so the, the, the number that we're using based on sort of this estimation from telemetry data that was it's sort of a published a model that we use for sort of risk of contact modeling. So how likely are bighorn sheep going to go out in the landscape and contact a particular distance from their home range, right? So all animals set up a home range. Generally, bighorn sheep do exploratory movements where they leave their home range and then may return. So whether it's to see what's going on on the next ridge or to look for receptive use, but generally the, the number there is 35 kilometers. So basically 95% of ram movements over a 14-year data set showed that almost you know 95% of those movements were within 35 kilometers from their home range. How, yeah, how big is his core zone? It, that varies. It could be, it could be large or it could be tight. You know. just depends it, on the it, habitat. habitat yeah. and the particular individual. So some individuals may have small home ranges. Some might have larger. So the, the crazy number is a little um, a ram that came out of the Lostine herd just this past couple of years. Where, he, where is that? Uh, near Joseph, Oregon, Okay. Enterprise and Joseph, yep. up in the Wallowa Range. Yeah, I, know, I know that there. area. Yep, yeah. Yep. So he took a little walk. And he went on a loop. So they were they collared him. He showed up, I think, on somebody's deck, and was just taking. And he they, they took a good photo, and they recognized. Sent him to the Hell's Canyon Initiative folks, and they recognized him as twelve lo twenty seven. Hey, that's a we ear tagged him as a lamb, so they knew they had a definitive age on him. And he went across the Snake River, the Salmon River, and then over into the Clearwater drainage in Idaho. And they put a collar on him at some point. They actually put three collars on him because they kept failing. So he got caught two or three times with a helicopter and i think he got darted once so and he made a 378 mile loop through seven different home ranges of bighorns, and he was out in some wheat fields and crossed a bunch of highways and so he went 125 miles from his home range and covered in that year and a half time or so with the collar he covered 378 miles and then died on a remote point in hell's canyon
0: natural causes
1: presumably yeah that was during i think it was during the winter so they would couldn't get in there with any other way besides a jet boat so i don't i remember how long it was when the collar went on mortality until they went and recovered it so he just went on a cruise he was just like yeah yeah so i mean it kind of just demonstrates the behavior potential of these animals that some of them are going to move and they show up in town you know when when you're when you have a civilization at the bottom of a nice canyon that joins up to another big canyon they're going to come through and it happens pretty regularly especially in that in that landscape of hell's canyon lower hell's canyon yeah so this brings up like
0: that brings up a big question so how we haven't really set up like what needs to happen here if we know what needs to happen but if they're gonna go do that how do you ever protect them from picking up transmittable diseases and spreading them to everybody
1: else right that's the million dollar question
2: well, and Steve, the protocol of many Western states is when a bighorn sheep comes in contact with domestic sheep, that bighorn sheep is shot. So that's that's a standing acting protocol because the fear is that that bighorn could then be the you know the vector, and and as as you know this this damn ram did i mean goes on a walkabout and and could have gone through a whole bunch of her so you know kind of now so the it standard
1: protocol would be, protocol is, would yeah. be the, the, the if administrative you removal
0: yeah. yeah you would kill yeah. like a state agency would kill that would ram kill that
1: ram and they're try, they're trying to get away from that where possible so that just just the setup i was talking about where some animals will show up and say it you know a town along the snake river where there's bighorn habitat on all sides and they show up in town and you know generally the the old method was let's just let's remove this animal so it can't go back. And, and they're removing it for the express purpose to protect of the, the risk: it,
0: it could have picked yep. up pneumonia, It could have made contact,
1: especially if it was n- seen obviously yeah, the ones, ones that, that are documented with, in a pasture with domestic sheep or g- domestic goats, you know, most of the time. or but what they're trying to do now is based on their proximity to WSU, is that we try to put you know dark the animal, live capture it then hold and test or else take it to the WSA WSU uh, facility and it becomes a research animal
5: basically. I'd like to, this, this was like my big aha moment when I came here, right? I was sitting with our biologist across the hall and, and he just kind of said it like it was just something that just happens. And I'm like, so you're telling me I could go get a grazing permit for my domestic sheep, go into public land. And then that wild sheep comes down and Boom! They shoot it. Is that can that go on? Yeah, and it does. You know, so we see in the breaks um, a couple of years ago, there was two young Rams. They went within three quarters of a mile of a domestic sheep herd. Boom! They were shot
0: by state. Yep,
5: yep. Because so, of them
0: being a vector. Yep. So what's like? What's your? Do you guys have a, a f- official stance on the practice? Like, is there an alternative? To that, I mean, just to that part of it, right there.
2: No, we we we, you know, our 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 objective is to keep the two species separate. Okay, so um, if there's known contact, you know, if you can send them off to WSU or send them off to Sebel in in Wyoming, great. Um, but you know, you think about that; that's also a death sentence. Yeah, you know, they're going to now be a guinea pig for disease testing. Um, so the you know that there's really not much we can do other than keep the two separated. So, you know, we circle back to Washington D.C., you know, that's what we're advocating for back in Washington D.C. is is federal land managers and agencies to to work for spatial and temporal separation of of wild sheep and domestic sheep.
0: What's that need to look like? I can I can imagine where it becomes Contentious. Oh, you bet. Could yeah. you mind like sketching out the obvious and how does that become a contentious conversation?
2: Well, you you know you got. I was I was just back there with a with a producer who's who's a, this is a domestic sheep producer. He's the largest uh, public land domestic sheep producer in uh, in Montana. He's a good guy, uh, and he gets it, and he uh, he does his best to keep his domestic sheep away from wild sheep. Um, and he wants more wild sheep on uh, on Montana's mountains, but you know the the issue is um, litigation. Uh, we're, wild Sheep Foundation is really not a, a a litigant type organization. We we feel we'd rather sit around a table and 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 work out solutions. So you know our our objective there, Steve, would be to sit down with that producer and go, all right, uh, you know the Western way of doing things is having a whiskey, chatting. Acknowledging that there's an issue first and foremost, and then looking for solutions. Is it is it times of year when, when a producer's trailing through an area? Uh is it is it how he uses or she uses the uh the you know upper allotments or you know these high mountain allotments. So um we've we've done various programs in various states. There's a few states that have very good collaboratives where you have a, a wild sheep and domestic sheep uh interaction working group. Uh, we don't always agree, but we sit around a table once or twice a year and say, "Let's, you know, let's come up with solutions that we can, uh, we can, we can work this out." Doesn't work everywhere. Um, you know, Wild Sheep Foundation's official position is we want healthy and uh, expanding wild sheep herds. Um, but we also support a vibrant domestic sheep industry. The key is there's often places that are just absolutely incompatible in the same landscape. Um, we have worked with um, permittees to convert. If it's a high conflict area, you've got a, a large population of bighorn sheep, large population of, of domestic sheep. And we know there's going to be contact. We've worked with some producers to convert them to cattle, where appropriate. Uh, There have been situations where we've worked with producers to um, pay them, uh, almost like a CRP program in the Midwest, but pay them to retire their allotment uh, or vacate their
0: allotment. Just to look at, like, what would you make in profits running sheep? And can we take conservation dollars?
2: And we'll pay you to not do it. Yeah, we take private conservation dollars to pay you to not do it. We just so in those uh, cases,
0: we, you, have, you have a willing seller, willing buyer ab- scenario. Absolutely,
2: and we, you know, we, we paid a uh, just because these these deals are typically conf- confidential, so I won't even mention the state. But we uh, we paid a producer four hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars to vacate uh, their allotment. Um, they were also in getting into trouble with grizzly bears and wolves. Uh, constant, constant problem. So uh, the expansion of grizzly bears and expansion of, of, of wolves has in some ways benefited b- bighorn sheep in some states because the permittees want get, to get the hell out of there. And they come to NGOs like Wild Sheep Foundation and say, can you give us a hand? Yeah. And we do. And we do. And we've spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars doing that. And you nailed it on a willing seller, willing buyer
0: deal. But what does it look like You're talking about big organized producers, okay? Who presumably have kind of like a business sensibility. They have a sense of profit loss. But what about all the people that just have two or three sheep? Excellent question. How do you even know who they are? Excellent question. Because I mean, I could go, like, my brother, he doesn't live in, he lives in formerly Bighorn Country. He's got some sheep, he's got 10 acres of irrigated pasture. He's got sheep out there. There's nothing to prevent him from having a buddy come over and say, "Hey man, I'd love to have a lamb for my place." Nothing, there's no paperwork. Yeah, yeah so the key so there how is, do you even
2: know? The key key there is education. You know, so I mean on this on this podcast, I mean we're we're going to be educating people that there's an issue. Um uh, you, you know, uh, I came from Texas, and I go down to, to Houston, and I give a presentation. I talk, I talk about the disease issue, in to a hunting community that you would presume would would know something about it, and it's kind of blank stares and never heard of it. Um, truth be told, I came to Wild Sheep Foundation from Dallas Safari Club. I wasn't aware of it. I've been in the the hunting and conservation industry for eighteen years. I hadn't heard about it. So it's 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 education. Um, Wild Sheep Foundation obviously respects. Private landowners, um, you know, respects private land rights uh, and your ability to do what you you want on your land. But um, you know, our 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 effort there would be to educate those private landowners or those recreational producers or hobby flocks or whatever you want, four H um ffa uh, a lot of 4h animals out there that could get in trouble Uh, educate them um i just i just spent two years two uh, days on the missouri river with a um, private producer in southern bc who gets it Um, and interesting enough he's got a small flock of, of domestic sheep they're actually mouflon sheep and he's in proximity to Bighorn habitat, and he's a part of an intera- interaction working group in Southern BC. And he was the guy that asked the question of them. He goes, "Well, why don't I, as a producer, test my sheep for Movi?" He did, and he's got an Movi-free flock, and he's now one of our biggest advocates as a domestic sheep producer uh, for Movi-free. Flock, so that would be potentially one of the solutions in the yeah, that, small that's, areas.
0: That's pretty interesting to think about because, I mean, you know, a lot of states have managed to get brucellosis out of livestock herds. You bet. You is, bet. is that an area of interest to think yeah. that you could expand? Absolutely. The, pneumonia-free you know, sheep?
2: Well, they would, you know, they'd be movi free sheep. There's a Dr. Tom Besser, who's our... Rocky Crate Endowed Cherries at Washington State University, probably one of the world's foremost experts on this issue. And, and he's advised us that if you have an Imovi-free domestic flock, that's about a 97% solution to this issue. So that that is exciting. Um, but there's a fly in the ointment. You don't say. Scott, Scott just talked about that ram that did a 300-some-odd-mile walkabout.
0: Yeah, if he's well, infected. Well,
2: so we've got, you know, we, we know that Emovi um, is not endemic to bighorn sheep, but Imovi is now resident in bighorn sheep. So we have herds in, you know, we're in Montana. So we have herds in Montana that. They test positive for MOV. Um, As Scott pointed out, there's a variety of strains. It's kind of like the, you know, not not necessarily, but again, layman's terms, kind of like the flu or the cold. You know, sometimes you get one hell of a common cold. Sometimes you get a little light one. Sometimes you get a flu. You know, there's a flu virus that, you know, that just wipes you out. Uh, Other times it's not so bad. Uh, Same thing with, you know, strains of MOV. Uh, this, This bighorn may be able to live with it. Well, now here's the fly in the ointment. What if we have a private land, domestic sheep producer doing the right thing?
0: Spending tons of money in the, to
2: do in it. Tons of money, testing his or her sheep. They're movie free They make sure they only bring in stock from emovi free And we get a wandering bighorn that's movie positive yeah. now, we've, now we've switched the, the dynamic there. And, you know, the, the, we, the fact is we've got to be intellectually honest and go, we're still back into a separation scenario. Now we're trying to separate, you know, these MOV-free, clean domestic sheep from a potentially
3: um, infected wild sheep. The truth of the matter, if we, we're going to have to think different. We, we can't continue to do the way we've done in the past. And I, I think there are opportunities that we miss. Um, and, and I want to emphasize the work that was done, uh, Gray, Gray mentioned private landowners earlier. We restored Bighorn Sheep in Texas with private landowners. Because uh, you, didn't, you didn't have a choice there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we figured out a way to do this together. And these these are people who care. And and our goal is certainly not to put people out of business. Uh, it, to, to me, the way we do this is we figure out new solutions, better way of doing business. We sit down at the same table. We don't play the politics. We... we we stopped denying that the disease exists. It's, it's real. You asked me a question or asked us all a question earlier. Didn't you have any ideas? You watched those numbers decline? Everybody had a, thought they had a pretty good idea why. It just never was demonstrated or proven. And, and later on, that information came in a controlled experiment and where, we, where we knew that it, that it did occur. And then the question became, well, that didn't really occur in the wild. Uh you guys did that in a controlled setting it really doesn't occur in the wild it does so the the first the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that we've got a problem and then we start working together and And grace says it best he talks about you know it's okay to have both on the landscape they just can't be there at the same time at the same place and so we have to figure out what that what that does look like uh but we are going to have to think outside the box how how uh You know, how do how do we do things? Uh, Is it I I, I know and and probably will suck the air out of this room, but we allow private landowners in Texas to benefit from sheep tags. There's an incentive there uh, for landowners to work with us. And it's worked extremely well. Um, Landowners are willing to do whatever it takes. We conduct we uh, landowners allow public hunters on their property to hunt. Uh, we hunt each other's property, we we do research, we capture sheep on private land. So there, there are lots of other examples. That's like, just one. Like
0: in that model, you're going for a thing where you're trying to change the landowner perception of what it means to have sheep.
3: Well, exactly. That
0: it's not just like, you're screwed now, buddy. There's a sheep on your property.
3: Exactly. Yeah. and And you'll never... As a private landowner or a producer, why would I care if there were sheep, bighorn sheep around here, if I saw no benefit from that? Yeah. And so I think there are opportunities that we haven't explored, that we need to. We need to sit down in the te- at the same table, work through some of these issues. But but we can't do that if we don't acknowledge that the disease exists. And if if every time something major happens or or an obstacle comes up, a a stumbling block, we run straight to D.C.
0: Are there uh? Are there pneumonia deniers?
3: Oh, absolutely.
0: Really? Yeah. that seems to be a common theme across a handful of wildlife right, diseases. The CWD
5: deniers have yeah. come on full absolutely. Recently. Well, there's deniers, and then there's users of. You know, we've seen it used as a leveraging tool when we they know that we'll pay to play. Gotcha. You know, they'll say, "Hey, you know, hey, we're going to bring in some domestics in here."
0: What do you all think of that? Right.
5: <laughs> so, or, you know, there's a guy in, in Gardner somewhere. Um, he got pissed. He lost his grazing allotments and said, all right, and brought in domestic sheep. And, what, we lost 43 sheep that winter. Just because he was like, well, I'll show we, you. We had,
2: a, we had a guy down in Wyoming that uh, he was basically a cattle producer, but he had, he had cattle allotments up to 11,000 feet in the mountains in, the, in, in prime, prime bighorn habitat. And he had—he was, you know, not—not the—not the best grazer in the world, and he would gotten in trouble with the BLM constantly, and he lost his BLM cattle allotments. He goes, "Fine, I'm going to put domestic sheep on my deeded land up at eleven thousand feet, right in bighorn habitat." Now, what are you going to do? So you know, we. So then he's
0: just doing like re, Well, just, re, wild, it's just retribution. That's wildlife terrorism.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. wildlife terrorism because he, you know, he knows. You know, so as, as as Garrett said, you know, you've got you've got people, you you got deniers, and then you got those that'll use it as a, as a weapon.
3: Well, and that that also occurs on just the different public lands issues. Uh, there there are some who would use use the grazing part of it as as or the anti grazing part of it uh, bring bighorns into that just just to lay that on the table. In other words. Uh, it's all about where it might be about public land grazing. That's not what we're about either. It has nothing to do with that. Our,
0: our, I don't follow what you're saying.
3: Well, one of the one of the public land guys can say it, say it better. There are we have uh, there are some groups who would use bighorn sheep to say that Got we don't you. want any grazing on public land. So let's use bighorn sheep to accomplish that. So
0: so someone who had an agenda where they felt like they weren't so much pro bighorn as they were. Anti grazing on public lands, exactly. and they'd be like, "This would be a great place for some bighorns." Exactly, because I know that I can, that I'll be able to manipulate right. that into achieving my other goal.
3: And that, that's not that's not our mission. Our, our mission is is simple: we put and keep sheep on the mountain. And and if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it together with livestock producers. And I think there's some really good examples out there for, of people working together. Uh,
0: well, I think that the the key, like you know, I've met with and have spoken with a lot of very effective players in the conservation space, people like the the people in this room in this organization who have a long track record. And the the thing that I find that these groups are in is you're in the middle and you got some crazies off to each side and you're trying to guide, right? You're you're trying to keep this thing moving along with some pretty radical fringe elements probably barking at you from both
3: sides.
5: Absolutely. You know, and and then I think you know, going back to, he just keeps preaching education and it's huge, huge, you know, I've worked with, uh, spoke with your buddy Ryan Callahan a lot. Like, mm-hmm. you talk to these companies who, one of their biggest things is wool, you know, and they're always preaching that they're selling great wool products, Well, where do you get it? Yeah, you know you you have some people that are they get from new zealand I think they do and so they're safe right same with sitka they're safe you know so talking with sitka in first light i mean like hey guys you guys want to talk about where you get your wool from or maybe where you shouldn't you have some groups that say we're we're environmentally friendly you know because we source our wool here locally and there's not these shipping things and all that and then you go well where do you get in they go oh colorado and you go oh so you're just killing you know i sat next to Yvonne Chenard up on stage talking about how, yay, if you're sourcing your wool west of the Mississippi, you're probably contributing to the die-off of bighorn sheep, and that got an interesting. I mean, yeah, interesting that's to
0: bold, yeah, that's a bold statement, man. Yeah,
5: well, I mean, you know, and or it's like
0: I should say a bold statement, but a statement that people could read into pretty heavily.
5: Yeah, it, well, and you know, I I should, probably should have followed it up more, but people just don't understand and a lot of times these people building the garments don't understand talking with, you know Ryan Callahan is a very educated dude when it comes to conservation and a lot of these things he did had, had no idea about so so if we huge. talk
0: about if we look at this like the separation thing the separation idea um well, well first I want to address something you just brought up is there, do you guys have a, is there like a, is there a, the, the equivalent of like labeling something organic or labeling, a, uh, an organization to be of a certain pedigree of 401k nonprofit? Like, is there, do you guys have a way where you like are certifying or, or giving a stamp of approval to certain producers for practicing?
2: No, we, we looked into it. Yeah. You did, we, yeah. we had a, we had a, um, you know, kind of a a, a wild sheep safe uh, campaign, and it it's the challenge with that. Steve is it did get into a certification process, and we didn't have the staff. Um, and and you know, then we we talked to our attorneys, and they went, "Oh man, you certify one and not a you know." So yeah. We kind of backed away from that on the wild sheep safe, and and it's and it's it's almost like Scott had said on you know what is effective separation, what is the distance. That's, yeah, I do so want to so talk about that separation. You know, yeah, a it's bit. a real it's a real challenge there. And but so, like in,
0: in Puget Sound, there's a thing. There's like a type of building that's like I don't know what they call it, salmon safe or salmon sure, country sure. or something. And so, a building can and a building can comply in a certain way, and it has to do with the quality of their runoff.
2: Well, right? so, that has
0: to do with that you've achieved some threshold, some bet. measurable threshold of, of acknowledgement that this water you, is going to be used by sand.
2: And this is this is what Garrett touched on. And so we're, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of looking at a, a concept of conflict free lamb and wool. Um, and we're still fleshing that out. I mean, there's responsible wool standards, mm-hmm. uh, that the wool industry uses. Interesting enough, I've read through most of the organizations that have responsible wool standards. It's more animal husbandry, it's, um, you know, it, it's transportation, it's predator control, whether or not there's some predator control going on in your area. They may think that's non friendly.
0: But they're not concerned about wildlife.
2: Uh, uh, nothing in there talks about bighorn sheep. So it's so- small- it's more, it's
0: more like animal rights issues and wildlife issues. You too. bet.
2: So yeah. we're, you know, we're reaching out to some of those more environmental groups to say, hey, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna run down this path, you better put bighorns in the picture. Uh but as we as we mature, you know, this conflict free space, um, it it too is more of an education program. I mean we'll we will probably never be able to have completely conflict-free scenarios in the Western United States unless you put the, the wool industry and the lamb industry out of business. And that's not our objective. I mean, that's just not our objective. Well, so, well, so, let, the me, key let is, me ask
0: this about, about that question. Let me ask this. Does, does the wool and lamb industry in the West absolutely rely on public land grazing? No. Okay, no. so, so, there's, so there's, six, there's a version about of About 60 to 70 families. And that's the but bighorns to- probably rely on private land.
2: Uh, no, more bighorns are on public land.
0: Even in the wintertime? Uh, yeah, still.
2: Yeah, yeah still. Um so yeah, it's it's a, it's 70 to 80% of the time they're spending on public land. Okay. So so there is a, you know, there is a public land grazing scenario and, and and it just it just varies on states. Montana it's not the it's not really the issue. Public land grazing is not the issue. It's more education of of private recreational herds uh, or you know, or producers. Um, Colorado is probably the ground zero for the public land grazing issue. Uh, with a lot of conflict zones. The BLM and the Forest Service have risk of contact maps. Um, You can look at a map and it'll show uh, active domestic sheep uh, grazing allotments, um, occupied bighorn range, um, and active BLM allotments, and then red conflict zones. So they're mapped out. I mean, we you know there's there's risk of contact analysis that's that's going on. The bottom line is we pretty much know where the the, the touch points and the hot points are. Um, you know, one of the solutions that we're looking at is what if we what if we took the top ten hot points and take, pick a state, Colorado. What if we took the top 10 hot points that, man, we've got, you know, real critical core bighorn herds in, there, in that area, and we've got some pretty significant conflict zones. What if we address those first? You know, it's, it's eating the elephant one bite at a time. Yep. Mean, it's, it's a huge issue. It's a huge problem. Um, you know, the disease issue is complex. We, we, you know, we don't have all the answers, but what if we could, you know, incrementally um, you know, ten percent at a time start addressing those issues with a variety of tools. Some of them are going to be bottom line moving a producer out of that area, and but the key there is can we find that producer other grass to graze? Um, you know, are there private land areas? Are there are there you know are there tools that we haven't used yet? You know, can can the the wild sheep advocacy community? Um, you know, if we're not going to buy you out, can we incentivize you to go on to some lower elevation pivot point? You know, some alfalfa field or some other grass field that you can utilize instead of high mountain summertime allotments where bighorn sheep are grazing. Yeah, I got it. So you. you know, we just got we got to get clever. And and Clay said it, and we we've got we we've got a program that we call our new narrative but the, you know the, the the premise is we've been doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result it's time to change that you know we all know that's called insanity if you expect a different result so we're we're uh you know we're, we we want to sit down with with willing producers who are progressive and get it and don't deny that there's an issue and sit down and say, "Hey, you know, you wanna you wanna uh, keep your family in business, and it's a part of the Western landscape. We respect that, you know, as a multiple use advocacy organization, which is what Wild Sheet Foundation is. We respect that, uh, but let's let's not do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Let's let's do different things and get different results.
5: It, and something Gray says a lot too, that you know, there's those that sue and those that do, um, and we're <laughs> kind of like." That first group that knocks on the door, and when we get denied, then we go, all right, well, when they knock on the door, it's probably not going to be as pretty. Yeah. You know, so we're kind of like that, just right at the beginning saying, hey, let's let's work things out. And then when we leave, if we get denied, you know, and there's, there's unfortunate reality that other groups just come in, and they're going to sue them.
0: Slash meat eater. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs the sport dog promise to consumers is simple gear the way you'd design it every product sport dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter now i've got two good buddies with what i would call really really good waterfowl dogs and here's one of those buddies Max,
5: not the dog, but the buddy I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, US and Canada, different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees and it just doesn't stop working I'm a fan for life
0: Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEAT Eater. so go to www.sportdog.com slash eater to learn more Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
1: You had a comment? It kind of got a little bit lost in there, but it's. I'll just chime in with the tribe's perspective on some of this, and, and it's really tied to public land grazing. And so... The, the, the tribes I work for have a treaty reserve right to harvest bighorn sheep, and that, that that's a deal it's, with the federal government. It's a, the trust responsibility of the, of the federal government, and they are at this time permitting through a federal action um, de- grazing of domestic sheep that adds knowingly adds risk to our populations of sheep bighorns. So they, we just basically can't accept that because we really can quantify the risk. So, we can quantify uh, uh, a minimum risk.
0: I want you to say it a little more clearly. You're, you're saying the tribe has a deal with the federal government that they can hunt bighorns. Mm-hmm. but It's reserved
1: in their Treaty of 1855,
0: and, too. They're a, and they're able to argue that the federal government, by giving the grazing allotments to domestic sheep, is hindering their treaty right. If we are know, a, if we a, are
1: knowingly adding risk to the population viability, I and mean, I think we can demonstrate that with the science, it's like coming yeah. through a back door to, yep. to grazing grazing domestic sheep on you know suitable and prime bighorn habitat is very problematic for us. And that and that that's just the the nature of it. And, and I mean, yes, we we are you know not against public land grazing, but we just need to take a make a hard take a hard look at where where's suitable to graze domestic sheep and where it's not and we need to protect the sheep we have but we have to look at how we're going to expand our sheep populations if we have allotments that are stocked with domestic sheep in historic and prime bighorn habitat that could would be suitable otherwise we got to think about that so do you does, does your or when you're working for the tribe mm-hmm. as a biologist do you
0: wind up interfacing with these guys at Wild Sheep Foundation, mm-hmm. are you in communication? Yeah, yeah. What are the conversations that you guys have? Private. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's always a good it's always a great discussion because this is a it's a tough it's a tough tough question, you know. I well, mean, you guys
0: are coming at it from the same side of the thing, or you want what's best for bighorns?
1: We do. That's and that's the we just have it. The tribe has a very different worldview of that, right? Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, that was something that was taken away and it, it's still a cultural memory. It's there. They they want to be fully, fully be able to fully exercise that. And a couple of tags is, is not sufficient. We do coordinate uh, with the states for, for uh, on issuing bighorn sheep tags. And so that's a little bit of a sore point. And so we really need to figure out how we can move the needle and, and, and get sheep back where they belong.
4: Yeah. So how does that work when they're on Indian reservation land, then they're
1: technically owned by well, we don't have bighorn sheep on the reservation. We have a relatively small reservation. Um,
0: but you have hunting rights
1: outside the reservation. We do. On yeah. um, th- about four different herds of sheep. And so we work with the states and, and figure out a tag allocation allotment. And, and we issue, we hold a drawing just kind of similar to the state drawing.
0: And they'd like to see more bighorn tags. Oh, yeah. Which means they need more to see more bighorns. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know? Yep. Are you guys, uh, I know you can't really answer this, but I'm just going to throw it out there anyway. <laughs> Optimistic or pessimistic about bighorns? I mean, a lot of like good work's been done, right, man? I mean, we were down to 25,000. We're up to what? 85,000. 85, What's a livable number for you?
2: You know, that's, that is the tough one, is, is where do we want to go? Um, and I, I guess the best way for us to express that is we would like to see bighorn sheep everywhere they are now suitable. The problem is, okay. Steve, um, you know, suitable, what does that mean? Where they're safe. Um, it's tough to find places to translocate bighorn sheep that they're not going to get into trouble.
0: Trouble being just this trouble, disease. trouble,
2: Trouble running into a domestic domestic herd. Like so, that,
0: so, is that really,
2: that like is that's the, the obstacle? number one inhibiting factor on restoration of bighorn sheep is, is contact with domestic sheep and goats.
0: So is, is, is it one. fair to say, like, if it wasn't for the disease, not blame, blame, whoever, but if, it, if the disease, for whatever reason, didn't exist, is it fair to say that we might have a million bighorns or 500,000 bighorns in the country
2: well we certainly have more than 85,000 and you'd probably easily say probably double that and maybe triple that I mean we've we've quad, you know we've we've had a three-fold increase since the late 60s 70s and I think we could have another three-fold increase uh, but right now there's it's tough to find um, as, as, as Scott's saying you know 35 kilometers I mean we're sitting in my office and there's a, a uh, montana unlimited bighorn ram that i saw on winter range and i took him 30 miles away so that's not 30 kilometers that's 30 miles away
0: you got an unlimited sheep
2: i did that's really a, that's an unlimited sheep
0: it's a big unlimited sheep it's a 13 and a half year old unlimited sheep like to kill me hold a you found you you found that same ram 30 miles from we, where you got him we found
2: that same ram you know a, a blind hog can find an acorn every once
0: in a while that's a big, unlimited yeah, was, unit it, RAM. It though. is unbelievable. Yeah, that,
2: that's the exact, I, on, my, on the front of my door, I have the live picture of that RAM. I had, I had a photograph in, in winter range of that RAM on my desktop on my MacBook for nine months, and we found three RAMs in a different unit, and one of them was that guy. One of them was bigger.
0: That's the nice thing about sheep is you can really because they don't lose, right? They got a horn, they don't lose. You yeah, can got you can he's keep got an eye three
2: on chunks of character. Now, you know, I, I need to I need to preface in, in in case, you know, your audience thinks I'm a great sheep hunter. Uh, I had a great sheep hunter with me. I actually had Kevin Hurley, our our conservation director, now our vice president of Co- conservation. He was our he was kind of our camp jack and I, I had the ace in a hole, Jack Ashton Jr. Who I think has sheep blood running through his veins was with me. So he and I, he and I backpacked up in, and, and we found the rim. And in Montana, liked, liked you got to his... get out of there in 48 hours. You've got to present a, a full head and cape uh, within 48 hours to game and fish or Fish Wildlife and Parks. And we got we got to the biologists in 48 after a bivouac and a lot of hoofing. Yeah, uh, just, just all the things you love. Uh yeah
0: that's pretty cool but the the point I realize the point you were making is just the distance is covered
2: yeah, that ram that ram covered thirty miles, and that was just standard for that ram And, he, he, and see, he
0: didn't do it by going in a straight line no no now
2: the good news is in in that unlimited area there's there's no more domestic sheep
0: is that right, yeah,
2: so I mean you know that that and and the the, the that was in the stillwater unit five hundred and and those sheep are relatively clean um and, and relatively hardy but they still have some resident pathogens in them but they're 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 living with it the problem is you then bring domestic sheep back in there and they bring in another strain of ovi and that's that's the that's the ticker that's the uh the straw that broke the camel's back and then you, you then you get a die off again
0: so let me hit with this question now that we've kind of like prodded around what the future might look like and what's acceptable um, do we now, do we right now know that at least it won't get worse? I don't, you know, there there are some, and, and I didn't
2: answer your first question. Well, I, no, am, I, I, I am going to I am, I, I am gonna answer Well oh, you are going to do it. Oh, yeah, okay. so I, good. Good. So I, I gave am. you out by saying because, you can't no, answer there's, it. Because, <laughs> there's, you know, there's, there's those within our community that think that status quo is success. Okay. Um, Wild Sheet Foundation, at least from my perspective, is not going to accept status quo. As success um, we want to come up with some more unique solutions to this problem and they're they're out there um, while i was in washington dc i had uh, had a beer with that domestic sheep producer and in nevada they took a little different tact they were a bit, uh, basically willing to accept more risk some states would be willing to do that others would not um, I, I Scott, I don't think that... So, I, I don't so, follow what you mean. So here, here's a scenario. Are, are we willing, um, if, there, if, we can, if we can work more on the movi free, um, if we can work with producers on better practices, is our community willing to, let's say in Montana, um, put wild, you know, translocate wild sheep into areas that typically we would not... Because we're fearful of that that uh, the disease transmission, and that's a big question we're facing right now so like, are you so willing to
0: spend the money on it?
2: are we willing to spend the money? Are we willing to to not litigate with a producer because that producer didn't object to us moving wild sheep within for argument's sake twenty Twenty miles of his
0: operation, so you're, make, we, you're making a tr- you're making a sort of truth.
2: We're just we're yeah we're we're you know this is this it's a it's a it's a organization wide question. It's a community wide question, and there's those that agree with it, those that disagree with it. But would we then set up protocols that you know we know that if that bighorn goes on a walkabout, that bighorn's not going to make it, or do we use do we use unlimited areas as a way to separate? Bighorns from domestic sheep. Are there are there areas and you know this is again a kind of a Montana uh, unique scenario. Can we use almost no go zones for for bighorn sheep? If a bighorn sheep is in that zone, it's unlimited. You can take it. Gotcha. you know we're we're just trying to think out of the
0: box. No, I'm with try you. to
2: try to think out of the box. Again, let's get let's get get past this, doing the same thing and just fighting over this. The good news and I guess why I'm I'm um, optimistic and um, realistic but optimistic is um, we are learning more and more and more on the disease issue. If we can get the domestic sheep industry to spend as much money as we do on disease research, that will help their industry because there's some there's some the data that show that you know Immovia is not good for domestic sheep either. Uh, it's it's endemic to them and it's resident to them, uh, but it's not. It's it's uh, you know there, Besser did one study. I think he was he was looking at the the live weight and and it was like a seven percent increase and then it changed. So I you know probably shouldn't use those numbers. But there was a kind of a significant weight gain. Uh, change between an amovi free domestic sheep and a Movi-positive domestic sheep. The amovi free gained weight quicker. Well, then there's a market incentive. Yeah. So maybe maybe there's some you know something that we can learn there. We're not there yet. Uh, it's 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 unproven. It's not published. It's not peer-reviewed. Um, but maybe there's something there. But you know, wouldn't that be cool if we can use market incentives? Uh, to encourage domestic sheep producers to, uh, you know, if they can, um, have a movie free sheep you know like like pretty much eliminating small smallpox maybe there is some sort of silver bullet where we can vaccinate domestic sheep and they're all immovie free i you know we got two bright guys in the room scott and clay you know i'm just a, i'm just a management guy and a marketing guy but um you know there's some very bright people out there that are working on this issue uh we've got the wildlife vet community working on it um there's not consensus on on what the solution is, but you know what? We haven't cured the common cold yet either. But at yeah, some point, we might.
0: But you have an interesting point there about producers being incentivized to get ahead of the problem. And Giannis and I had an interesting conversation one time with Wyoming's current governor Matt Mead, where he was just talking about we we're talking about sage grouse and the extraction industry, and he was saying that ex- many players in the extraction industry have a very long view and they're very sophisticated and they know that like for them to be on the ground doing good business they need to head off problems and a problem that they have a vested interest in heading off is not letting wildlife get into dire situations where you're going to then invite high level scrutiny into practices and that what's good for them to operate in their area would be good sage grouse numbers. And that they can at times be very effective players when they have that long view, and not heading into conflict, heading into disaster, courting litigation. Great pro. But you just have. But again, you have to be in it for the. You have to be looking to the future to to ten years profit, right? Not tomorrow's profit, right? Right.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. I'm I'm optimistic. We've made a lot of progress in in wildlife disease and you know, disease in our domestic livestock, if you think some of the things we've gotten out of our domestic animals over the, you know, centuries that we've been doing it, I'm I'm optimistic that we can, if we put the shoulder to this one, I think I think it can, we can overcome it. I hope, I'm really
5: hopeful. I think the fact that you're, you know, honestly, Steve, you're here. Like, that's a reason to be optimistic, because this was something that wasn't really talked about a whole lot. You know, and you get these, these guys that haven't, incredible influence on the community you know and and understanding really what we're up against you know imagine this issue flipped onto the elk population oh you know be a different, you know, it'd be a different a totally different story that, yeah. and why because you know north american model is a huge success largely because of opportunity to hunt you know relatively low opportunity to hunt wild sheep relatively low funding for conservation that's where we come in if it was elk on the same landscape, man, this wouldn't even be a discussion. You know, could you imagine if twenty bull elk came down into a domestic sheep herd and they mowed down those twenty bull elk just because they came in contact with them?
0: Yeah, no way. It'd be a different. Conversation. No way.
5: And so the almost what makes them so aspirational, like you know, you know, it's so difficult to get a tag. It's so difficult to get to their habitat, the things that make them so aspirational can also impede them on making them relatable to our everyday lives and understanding what's going on. If we see a die off of 14,000 feet, we don't really take heed to it. And it's not something that impacts our freezer. We don't think it does. But we talk about wild sheep being 1.5 million, you know, almost double what elk are today. Imagine if they were. Imagine if it was something that you just, you know, you went down to Bob Ward's and bought yourself a tag and when when sheep hunting? Yeah. Like you they have, you could have a be. lot
0: more advocates. That's an interesting point that Callahan brought up after being at the sheep show. Was he was like, he's kind of marveling at the amount of people that are, are spending so much time, so much money, so much energy getting behind sheep conservation. And he's like, The thing of it is, most of those guys are never gonna draw a sheep tag. They're just doing it for they the idea, it. for the idea.
5: You know, something do they do. The idea of it. A lot of these, a lot of the chapters that they do, it's pretty fun. You know, you sit down at the banquet and they say, all right, stand up if you've taken a sheep," And it's like maybe a fifth of the room. Yeah. But people are going to spend thousands of dollars every night because they just believe in it. It's just out of their grasp, but they believe in it enough. You know, it's just this aspirational thing that we almost can't can't imagine going after. I, w- I would say that we
2: have the most altruistic um, membership in our community i mean we've got 7200 members steve last year we put 4.6 million dollars into wild sheep conservation is that right 4.6 million 18.1 million in the last four years with a little small 68 to 7200 member organization um Clay worked on a project um, a couple years ago, and we were we were looking at it, and it's kind of switching gears a little bit. But it, it looks at the auction tags, um, and those are a little controversial.
0: Oh, we spend tons of time giving yeah. both sides of that yeah. argument. Yeah, those are a little. Controversial. I see both sides of that argument. You bet, with crystal clarity. We jump into but that you, right you, now,
2: you a look. Let me, let me, let, let me give you, let me hour give hour you hour some hour. facts when it comes to wild sheep
0: conservation. Please, please, seventy
2: four percent. Can I first of, explain
0: what you are talking about? Yeah, please do. All right, we've talked about this a thousand times. People always ask us about this. But um, when you have, I'm speaking for the listeners right now. When you have a resource that isn't large enough to meet the demand on the resource, you have to find a way. And I'm talking about a wild game resource. You have to find a way to allocate opportunity, right? And so if you live in the great state of Michigan or Wisconsin and you want to go deer hunting, there's enough deer to go around. Everybody goes down. You buy a deer tag. Everybody gets to go. With a lot of wildlife species, there's just the numbers aren't there. And so everyone throws their name in a hat and it's meant, you know, I shouldn't say meant to be, but traditionally those opportunities are allocated democratically. An exception to that case would be what you're going to now explain, um, which would be when they take tags, usually for very coveted species or coveted hunting areas, and they take tags and sell them to a highest bidder, And here's the rub. Here's the thing you got to pay attention to. And it's usually structured in such a way that like 90% of the money goes into the ground for restoration work. So it's not lying in someone's pocket. And this is tightly, this is carefully watched. This is a carefully watched flow of money. So you bet. With so, a little bit so, of bad, because yeah, a lot of people don't know what about. It's, so. it's, a,
2: it's a great. It's a great setup, and and, I, and I, if, if if I could expand on it, you know, I um, Shane Mahoney's a, a great friend, and he and I give talks around you know the world, and and he was listening to some of my talks on this this tag thing that we're going to talk about the special permits and tags. You know, where exactly what you said. Where, you know, one or two or five. Um, Special licenses are taken from the pool of available tags and sold to the high bidder. And I used to call that a bastardization of the North American conservation model. You used to. I support it. I never even went that far. But I called it a bastardization. And I, I, I had Shane, uh, Shane Mahoney down in my drift boat. And we're floating down the Yellowstone River and, and we're you know, probably enjoying a beer, in, in Shane's case, a Guinness. And he was just having a good time. He goes, Gray. I want to. I want to touch. Can, can you say it the way? Like, can you use his accent? No. <laughs> I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get the voice of God, of, of Mister Shane Mahoney. There you go. Great yeah, guy. Go. Absolute fabulous conservation. But he, you know, he says, you know, Gray. You know, I've I've listened to you say this a number of times in a number of places. That you know, this 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 special ter- permit and tag and it could also be a raffle tag and we'll get into that but the special permit and tag is a bastardization of the north american model he's
0: saying to you i've heard you i've say heard it. me say this
5: and okay, i and
2: yeah. i talk i use, you know and i even use capitalism socialism kind of our 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 standard system is an egalitarian program and, and you know steve as you put it i mean anyone can go down and get a tag um, when it comes to some of the coveted ones, where it's a, whether it's a bighorn sheep or a stone sheep or a desert sheep or, or a, a Rocky Mountain elk in a particular unit in Utah, um, you can auction off those tags, too. So now that's, that's not egalitarian. That's I want to going interrupt to the throw a piece spirit. of color
0: in. I apply for a bighorn sheep tag every year in six or seven states. Good for you. And the in this state in particular for thirteen no fifteen or sixteen years in a row and I haven't gotten one. Just right. to give a sense of it, like what we're talking about when we talk about the slim pickings. You got you the got, slim pickings on tags.
2: You got guys in Montana that have been plying for thirty five years and yeah. have not drawn a tag. So, you know, you're either lucky. Um or you go into a jurisdiction like Montana that has the unlimited units, but you know, we got a three three to four percent success. But so so we're on on the river and Shane goes, you know, Gray, and he is you know, he and Valor's Geis are the probably the the foremost authority on the North American model. He says, You're actually wrong. It's not a bastardization of the North American model. The North North American model also is one of its seven pillars, gives the state the opportunity to decide how it funds wildlife conservation in that state. And so a state that decides, like Montana, that we will take out of the pool of bighorn sheep permits one auction tag and one raffle tag, and the key there is one goes to the the you know the, the the high bidder and the the very affluent
0: one out of a couple hundred
2: but uh, yeah well, yeah i think we have 150 tags or so so you know one goes as a as an auction tag and one also is a raffle tag that you know so us regular folks can you know buy a raffle ticket and potentially have a little better odds then you know then the you know you've been in for 13 14 and some people 35 years. So here's the interesting thing when it comes to wild sheep and and Clay Clay led this study with a with an intern. 74%. And I'll say that again, 74% of WAFWA, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, the western agencies in United States and Canada. Uh, 74% of their wild sheep conservation agency dollars comes from either an auction
0: or a raffle tag. Is
2: that right? 74%.
0: Now, So you're, we peeling, tra- you're peeling, like, let's say, two tags out of 100-plus tags, right. and those two provide
2: 74%. In a state like Arizona, it's about 95% there right and the other thing that was interesting in this in this research and we we used waffwa data uh, 40% of all waffwa wild sheep conservation agency dollars comes from one organization and that's the wild sheep foundation really yeah so you know we have a we have a very, relatively small footprint when it comes to membership at 7200 we cast a very, very long shadow when it comes to conservation and putting money on the ground. Um, but, you know, there's, there's sensibilities. Wyoming gives five tags away on, on auction. Um, if, if Wild She Foundation went to Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and the commission and advocated for another auction tag, our building would be burned down.
0: So, you know, it is controversial. It's, but, but, you know... It, but check this out, man. I, I, I put it to my brother, or I, another guy put it to my brother in a conversation. And my brother, like, there's nothing he likes more than just like wrestling with ethical questions. So they put the governor thing to him, and he was saying that he, he feels, uh, on auction tags, he feels that in balancing the morality of it, or in balancing the ethics of it, you need to look at what are the impacts of the auction tag. Because the auction tag is going to remove an animal from the landscape. But the money if well spent, is probably going to add a higher number of tags to the general pool by the habitat work and relocation work and putting more sheep on the ground. So that, that money might be pulling a sheep out of the pool and returning four or returning five or returning 10. So there are actually possibly more tags made available thanks to the auction tag than in spite of the auction tag he
2: he nailed it you know we were talking about that unlimited ram i can assure you uh in 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 we were looking at some data back in 2014 we've changed we've changed the dynamic in montana now now there's an application fee of 50 bucks but um the amount of sheep revenue coming into montana fish wildlife and parks on on the unlimited tags and the limited tags was less than two hundred thousand dollars
0: Okay. And the uh, and it was actually for-
2: a lot closer to a hundred thousand dollars, around one hundred, twenty hundred forty thousand dollars. You can't pay a biologist in a truck and you know uniforms and like on a hundred and forty thousand dollars. You know, that same year we sold the Montana tag for three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. We've sold Man. that tag as high as four hundred and eighty thousand dollars. And you pointed it out earlier, ninety percent of that money goes right back into fish, wildlife, and parks in a dedicated sheep account. So we retain 10%. Well, we spend a hell of a lot more than 10% back in Montana. So one 100% of those dollars go right back onto the ground into wild sheep conservation. In Arizona, it's 100%. Wild Sheep Foundation sells that tag. We spend a million dollars to put on a show to get somebody crazy enough to spend $300,000 on a desert sheep. Bighorn sheep tag and one hundred percent of that dollars goes back to Arizona Game and Fish into a dedicated account to restore bighorn sheep and conserve bighorn sheep and that Arizona. that
0: probably includes some disease spending. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm you know, like tipping so, more and more every year. Yeah. So I tip more and more in the direction of like it's just like one of those it's one of those things that you want to be like, yeah man, I see where you're coming from. I'm not digging and you might I'm not even asking you to aesthetically like the auction tags like i'm not asking you to like the aesthetics of it but you it's almost like you cannot argue with the efficacy
2: you know and i, I uh, getting back to that unlimited i know that i had as a regular guy you know a nonprofit employee as a regular guy I had the opportunity to buy, in effect, a bighorn sheep. I was living in or in, in Wyoming at the time. I was able to buy a bighorn sheep tag in Montana for seven hundred and fifty bucks back then, in twenty fourteen, as a Wyoming resident, and hunt um, bighorn sheep in Montana. And I was able to do that only because some other crazy guy, gal, whatever, had the wherewithal to spend $350,000 on one tag. And that money went to ensure that I had an opportunity to hunt in, in Montana. So I, I look at it, you know, it's, it, it, it can be unseemly. I look at it a little different. I look at it as I am grateful that there are people out there that could give money to their alma mater, uh they could give money to cancer research and they do uh but there are those that have the wherewithal and they give it to wild sheep restoration and conservation so um instead of vilifying those folks i sell yeah but we
0: can't measure their motivation
5: oh you you know i mean you can't eat horns i don't you know (laughs) i think steve the way that i've i've said you know A lot of us like to say hunting is conservation is a term we use a lot. Yeah. And I don't think that there's any better depiction of that, honestly, than those auction tags. When you take one tag out of the whole pool that funds 70-whatever percent of that conservation of that species, you know, hunting right there is conservation.
0: Yeah. the, The numbers are, yeah, the numbers are... You're struggling with this. You're- no, I'm not. Cause, yeah, because here's the thing. Here's what I like to do. I like to take to, I like in, in, in wrestling with an idea, I like to take it to the extreme because one might come in and say, well, wow, man, that's a lot of money. Let's take all the tags and auction yeah, them all right. off because that'd be a hell of a lot of money.
2: Yeah, then we, At which then, point then we I would the say, well, down.
0: now I feel as though you have, right? So we all agree that there's like, that's that's not a tenable solution. Right. So we all agree that somewhere in here, there's a line, right? And we're like trying to like identify the line. Now, to have a state do one, that's pretty damn conservative.
5: Yep.
4: Right. Do you guys have numbers on how much the raffle tag brings in?
2: Um, I don't know if Garrett, you have that. You, you know, it, Montana, it's, it's typically a little shy of two hundred thousand dollars. No, oh. yeah, but it's significant. I mean, it's significant. You know, and that's five, that's five bucks a pop, right? You know, the, the you know the auction tag is the is the the main player, but you know, I I, I probably a uh, you know hip pocket would be a um, I wouldn't want to say a two thirds one third, but you know, maybe sixty percent of the money comes from the auction tag, forty percent from a raffle. Have you guys um, ever
0: calculated this out? Um, that's pretty good. I think I my brother less. yeah, my brother ran the numbers out. But I can't remember if he was confident in it. Is if the raffle tickets are five bucks, how much do you need to spend on raffles before you're doing better than just applying for the tag?
2: Yeah, it just kind of. I think it was a
0: surprisingly low number. Yeah, where like your odds of getting the tag increased like twenty five bucks yeah. or something like that. Yeah.
2: No, the raffles, you know, you know, bunch our 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 community of chapters and affiliates. I mean, that's. You know, a raffle is so much better odds than any of any of the state or provincial, if, if there's an LEH in a, in a province. But, you know, any of the LAH drawings, a raffle's a much better odds.
0: They're just throwing into the state, oh, into the yeah, draw. I mean, you're,
2: you're better off getting it. You know, if, if you're an aspirational sheep hunter. And uh, we all are. <laughs> and, you know, get into these raffles. Or, you know, we've got, you know, the gratuitous plug, but we've got the Less Than One Club, which is an organization or Club, if you will, within Wild Sheep Foundation, where for twenty-five bucks, if you have not taken a wild sheep ram, for twenty-five bucks, you're entered into a drawing for three doll sheep hunts that we give away at our convention, and we've got nine hundred or so, twelve hundred or so in that in that club within Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, you got three chances. Uh, we we spice it a little bit, Steve, because the first drawn, you don't have to be present. Uh, the second drawn, you got to be present, and the third, you got to be present to win. Gotcha. Um, at this last, less than one club reception, and, and a reception's maybe a um,
0: one of our colleagues drew one of those.
2: Yes, yeah, he did, and and but that reception's maybe not the. It's it's basically a beer fest. We went through twenty five kegs of
0: beer in an hour and a half for three sheep tags. Eight for three kegs, sheep eight, tags. Te- so eight kegs per tag. You
2: bet. So you know we. <laughs> Maybe, maybe our community is kind of a, a, a drinking club with a sheep hunting problem. But, yeah, yeah. but it's really cool. I mean, the energy in that room is absolutely electric. And, you know, when someone that has aspired to be kicked out of the club, and that's what we say hey, you join the Lesson One club hoping to be kicked out, and you're kicked out when you take a ram, um, you know, we're giving away opportunities for, for relatively low dollars um and trying to augment the the state and provincial drawings that that are pretty low odds
0: my buddies i've been saying how after many years i'm saying how i'm like taking a break from shot show and i say to my buddies and i'm gonna start i'm gonna like spend a couple years at a couple other shows and i've brought it up with multiple of my friends in the in the hunting industry and they universally are like dude cheap show
2: it's fun. It's a family. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a, um, you know, we talked about the altruism, but what, what's cool, and, and I think there's a little bit of a misnomer about who, who we are because, the, the, you know, the, the talk comes about, and I threw the numbers out, you know, $4.6 million last year with, with a relatively small club. So the, the, the erroneous assumption is that it, you know, it's just a bunch of rich folks. It really isn't. It, the, the demographic of our, our show are, is, you know, the age is going down and down and down because it's you know there's something badass about hunting sheep. Yeah, there's something something badass about wanting to hunt sheep. Uh, there's something badass about training to hunt sheep. So we're seeing our our attendance uh, age go down and down and down. We have backpack races, indoor backpack races, outdoor. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a fun time. But what, what was interesting, and I had a guy come up to me, and he was actually at the Lesson One Club this year, and he, he said, you know, um, I'm sitting here, there's 1,500 people in this, because you know, now we let anyone go into the lesson One Club. You don't have to be in the reception. You don't have to be a member. And people, I mean, guys that have taken 27 sheep come into the lesson One Club just to see how cool it is for some new aspirational woman or man win their first sheep hunt. Uh, the 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 first drawn is a, a female mountain climber that's dating a sheep and moose guide in Alaska outfitter in Alaska, and I mean it was just fabulous when she won. She you know she won a f- incredible Northwest Territories. She looks down at her boyfriend and, you know, she told me later, she goes, you know, I couldn't sleep that night. So I'm sitting there poking him, you know, in bed going, do you see what I want? Did you see what I want? (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's cool. And it's the family, but this guy came up to me and he says, Hey, look, he goes, I, I go to all the shows, and I do too. I mean, I'm a member of every, uh, all of the organizations. They're all great, and we support them. But he goes, you know, I walk around this room, and I have the feeling that there are some real big players in here. He goes, I feel I can talk to anyone in this room, and anyone in this room will talk to me. So... Yes, you know, it's, it's a it's a great family. And there's something about wild sheep. You know, I, I, we talk about sheep fever. You know, we talk about it as being a sickness. But there's something about the places they live. Uh, there's something about how challenging it is to get up to where they live. Uh, it's something about the training that you have to do, the mental preparation, you know, and and, and it's probably in, you know, Steve, you hunt in places that's just fabulous. Uh, And do it, and do it the right way, do it the hard way, and do it the way that we all aspire to hunt. Um, But that's kind of the essence of sheep hunting, you know. You you got to earn it,
3: you know. It doesn't come easy. There's no easy rim.
0: Yeah, it's for the hard players.
3: It is. Steve, I uh, spent my life on bighorn sheep, and I am a less than one member. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Really? Yep. I'm not. You need to be. Yeah,
4: I already made a decision. We're going to the, uh, Wild well, Sheep show. Uh, I think, yeah, year. I
0: want to go this year. I'm yeah, going for sure. Happy. And
2: it's not on Shot Show. It's February 7th through 9th, so we're, we're off shot.
0: So I could feasibly. I want to spread my wings, man. I got to check some new stuff out. Yeah, you'd love I got to it. check some new stuff out. Um, any uh, final thoughts
5: around the table? We, we're doing the whole thing. Yeah, man, if you
0: feel that it's all been said, you can just say it's all been said. <laughs> I don't have any concluding
5: thoughts. Oh, man. I'm, you know, as the preacher said, once I get started, generally I'm too lazy to stop. So <laughs> I don't know if you want me to do that. But, I, you know, I do think it's worth just mentioning, you know, Stephen Janis, Giannis, it, it means a lot having you guys here, you know, and helping us talk about, you know, what we do as an organization. We, the reality is, is we can serve a species that lives at 14,000 feet and that lives below sea level. Um, and that includes a lot of animals along the way. So That's a good way of putting it, man. I never yeah. thought about it like that. Yeah, I mean, when we do guzzler projects, a, a, a frequent animal that visits is a desert tortoise, right? You know, we... Just did a rehabilitation um, deal with uh, encroaching conifers. And, uh, you know, the guy, when we kind of got done, goes, well, actually, this is more mule deer habitat than anything else. But, um, you know, so we can serve that species and we have to watch that chain of events happen all the way through those different uh, different elevations as they migrate. We have to watch, you know, just food, um, predator management, obviously domestic sheep conflict, and a lot of people don't know that that hap- has to happen, that chain has to happen the whole way for this to work. And the fact that, you know, you guys are here and helping us tell that story, that just does good things for us. Like helping sheep, you're touching a lot of wildlife. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're taking an animal that lives in the wildest places on both ends of the spectrum and probably one of the more wild animals in nature and behavior, and therefore you encapsulate a lot of critters right in the middle. Yeah. And and so what we do, you know, it has legs. Forty percent of wild sheep conservation comes from us, and we conserve a lot of critters along the way. Well put.
3: Uh, for me, you ask us if if we were optimistic, and and I am. Uh, I think a lot of times we focus on just the disease, just the just the negative side of of the story. And if you look at the numbers, we, we, today you have. Uh, uh, a better opportunity to to see sheep, to hunt sheep. Uh, my kids have my grandkids have a better opportunity to draw a tag than than I did when I started my career. Uh, that's important to me. Um, I, I and I do. I, I am confident that that. Uh, and I, I don't know. I've, I've been accused of of being Pollyanna. I, I've heard someone said that to me once. Uh, but I, but I'm confident that that we can come to the table and try to think outside of the box, think a little bit different. Scott touched on it earlier. The science is improving; we're learning more and more all the time. But I'm I'm confident that that we will come together to find solutions, and I'm talking about both wild sheep advocates and the livestock industry to work together to achieve things that all of us benefit from. Uh, I'm confident that that can occur. I, I, uh, I just think uh, you know the 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 younger younger generation. I I, I think they're smarter. I think they. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know about that.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, I just I just think think that th- that the future is promising, and uh, I uh, I I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to where we came from. We've we've invested too much, blood, sweat, and tears uh to to be where we are today and and I'm I'm proud of the Wild Sheep Foundation and proud of what we do every day and I'm proud to work for the organization. Um uh, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe in the mission and and so I'm 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 optimistic about where we're headed. And never got a sheep. Not on purpose. I'll say it that way. Through uh, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> never got a sheep. Do you draw for do you put in for sheep tax I do. I do. Huh
4: a lot, like Steve, thirteen Western states. <laughs>
0: no,
3: probably not that
4: much. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: don't know if it's that many, but it's a handful. Yanni, you good? Or can
4: you guys answer this quickly? Because I heard a little. I heard a rumor. Are, are llamas bad? Oh, that's a, that's the main thing sheep? I wanted to ask.
0: Is yeah, my brother? Is my brother need to kill all his llamas? Camelids.
2: Yeah, you know we're we're not as worried.
0: No, just give it to me straight. Yeah,
2: man. we're not as worried about them. There's there's some new papers coming out. Clay, maybe you talk about. Scott, you can talk. About. I know uh, uh, Helen Schwanchi up in British Columbia is a little bit more concerned about them um, than we are. You know, it's kind of like pack goats. Uh, we we're pretty concerned about pack goats, and and you know as we as we learn more and more, pack goats seem to be more likely MOV free than than uh, you know just a boar goat running around the. So, um, but but llamas can carry it. No, they can't carry mycoplasma. Well, they shouldn't be able to carry mycoplasma over pneumonia. You know the ovum. The, you know the
0: ova, I mean, Why do people keep Why do people keep texting me to bust my brother's balls about yeah, hunting with llamas? We.
3: There's some potential disease risk yeah, there. Yeah,
2: and, and it's, it's kind I'll of like it a, it's way. another rock that we've got to turn and just I go, see. gosh, now but, do
3: we've got to get involved with the llamas. Even, even the pack goat <laughs> industry thing, uh, pack goats are a big thing. We're working with the pack goat industry right now to, to develop some best management practices that we believe would work, that would involve some testing and other things. Kevin Hurley's actually meeting with those folks here.
0: Are well, distributing uh, goat recipes? Uh, no.
3: No? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, a, good, got, a good goat will do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, it, it, uh, for, uh, the, the short version is, for us, at this stage of the game, it's not worth gambling with. We don't believe that it's worth the gambling.
0: I see. So. Yeah,
5: have, do we- have your brother test it
0: i will yeah he can have his
5: tested absolutely just, yeah, just he probably right. know
0: he's not like uh he's not a negligent dude i just haven't talked about it with him lately i'm sure that he's doing whatever he should be doing and he's the kind of guy too that i think if someone like laid out for him like a really compelling case i feel like he'd just be like okay i'm gonna buy a horse
5: yeah which is smarter anyway
0: well he just doesn't have that that background man People that grow up around horses, you you can't catch them.
4: Yeah, his wife, is who this is per- a horse, I don't know, I don't want to say whisper. That's no, weird. No, she's but like, like a she, horse she and grew up around horses almost every day. Her
0: dad grew up around horses. Her great grandfather. She
4: recommends that he does not get involved with horses. <laughs>
5: <laughs> is this the brother that lives in Mile City?
0: Yeah, and his wife comes from a long, long line of of horsemen, um, breeders, and you know, and uh, ranchers. And she has it's too she's, she's recommended that he temperamentally needs to steer clear of horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got something? Well, is that was that your concluder? Yeah. yeah. That was all? Yeah. Thank you. That's a good one, because I forgot about that and that was top of mind.
2: Man. Did we properly dodge it? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. No, but it was enough. I, I said I got some code language. We, we, yeah, we don't <laughs> want to
2: poke that one in the eye right now. We got enough.
0: Yeah, fish you got issues. bigger
1: fish to fry, yeah. right? I'll just rewind just a little bit if there's, you know, there might be some listeners that are maybe a little confused about the setup, just some about the sheep ecology in the the situation that we're in. So historically sheep evolved in, you know, in large metapopulations of well-connected subpopulations. So individual two to a hundred size groups, right? So all these, Oh, you're on domestics or bighorns? bighorn sheep. Okay. So they were, you know, Moving through the landscape, you know, maybe ram groups going to breed different groups of ewes. And so we had this sort of network of connection depending on the habitat. Like, think about the basin and range in Nevada, those mountain ranges that yeah. jut up out of the desert. Sheep would go across those, right? So that's where, in modern times, we've got humans in the bottom, sheep. You know, full year-round sheep, year sheep habitat on top, they cross. We, that's where we're running into our problems. The river systems, they're traveling up and down. So their ecology and their, their evolution is to move in between groups. And so functionally, we want to manage for large groups of sheep rather than small, isolated groups, because there's all kinds of negative impacts of that. So we're kind of stuck in that, that problem where we like, okay, here's a good piece of habitat but we've got surrounded by domestics and we can't have sheep shooting out of it and going to talk to their, their friends upriver. Okay. So we've kind of gotten ourselves into a little bit of a pickle. And so that's-, that's You mean one a little
0: bit of a pickle by thinking in pocket mentality. Exactly. Oh, we could exactly. have a few here. We could have a few there.
1: Yes, but yeah. they can't, but if they come out, we can't, we can't let them come out in the valley or we're going to remove them. So we've kind of got ourselves into a bind that way. But, but look at all this great sheep habitat we have and, and we want to have sheep there. But at the same time, it's hard to let them be sheep because their natural tendency is to move around between groups and
3: you know eventually spread out that's and an excellent point excellent point in 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 Texas, you know we've built those populations metapopulations there's constant interchange between populations, and we've encouraged that b- because we haven't had the domestic sh- sheep issues to deal with, so that's yep. an excellent point yeah trying to that and trying to restore that connectivity
1: of herds really like it's, it's it's the pie in the sky and it's it's right in waffles. Um, you know, main goal as far as con- connectivity and, and metapopulation management—that that's the that's the goal we're shooting for. Not just to have one big population or, or one robust one here. We need a bunch of them that are all functioning together, exchanging genetic material, and, that are talking and, to and, each you know, other. They're yeah. they're more resilient to disease outbreaks when you have a whole bunch of dif- different scattered groups of sheep and they're they're moving their genes in between. And, and it's just it's, it's the setup we need to go for. And it seems
0: to give you a situation to have localized disasters yeah. horrible winters and 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 yeah. then hopefully yeah. get them back without needing yeah. to then have it be by a helicopter exactly yeah
1: so that was just one thing i think people might have missed out on if they're you know not familiar with sheep and and how they've evolved no that's um, a, that's a good point and yeah. It's, it's yeah and it, it spans habitat types too generally um and then i guess my my little concluder is i mean we've we've had a great discussion today and i thank you for having me um and a lot of the sheep habitats on public land. So, folks listening, if you if this hit strikes a chord, get involved. I mean, it's a public lands, public wildlife. You know, you need to be if you want to be heard, you got to be there. You know, and a lot of these decisions are being made. You know, policy level stuff that's d- disconnected from the science. And if you don't like it, you need to be there. And so, that's my main point: is get involved. Yeah, Join it's, your, your, it's your sheep. If these are these are everybody's sheep, and we need to be. Be there to make good decisions, and uh, yeah, so and I hope that everybody listening will be able to someday draw a sheep tag. I want to <laughs> you know you've hunted all over the west. How many bighorn mountains have you passed sheep mountain sheep ridge, big sheep ridge? Most of them don't have sheep
0: yeah, so, that's a good point. I think man. we need
1: to get we need to get there, where bighorns and sheep mountains are are restored with sheep, bighorn sheep
0: yeah, if every sheep mountain had a sheep on it, we'd be in good shape, yeah. yeah. So, one one last concluder.
2: One last concluder, um, Steve Giannis. First, first and foremost, um, want to thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I, I talked about Wild Sheep Foundation casting a, a broad conservation shadow. Um, you cast a huge communications shadow, and a lot about what we were talking about today was education, and you've provided us an opportunity to educate a hell of a lot of people, and we're grateful. Um, the final thought that I'd like to, to, to say is that, you know, we, we, you touched on it on this, the extremes, you know, there's an extreme on the right, there's an extreme on the left. Um and I've said this a few times to a few different groups, and I think it resonates. If, if we could concentrate, whether it's the non-consumptive community, the hunting community, the conservation community, the environmental community, the, the domestic sheep industry, the cattle industry, the, you know, whatever, and the wild sheep advocacy community, if we could aspire, work, and focus on the 80 to 90% that we agree on, and not spend all our time on the 10 to 20% that we disagree on, Yeah, we can move mountains. So that's kind of our new narrative. Let's, let's start looking at the areas where we agree and work on those and not bitch and moan and focus on the areas we disagree.
0: It's on. an interesting idea that you imagine a big room and everyone's in it and you make an announcement. If you think wild sheep are cool, come over in this room. And most people are going to wander in the room and then start there. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yep. Put our differences aside. Look for areas that we can work together, not areas that we spend all our time
0: fighting. Yeah. You get a lot of work done in that space.
2: We'll put and keep sheep on the mountain, wild sheep.
0: Yeah. Well, it's an admirable goal, man. I think that anyone who, you know, is up in some high, crazy mountain peak where you just, kind of like happy with yourself for just having gotten up there and to see one of those things crest out and turn his head and there's those curls it's just magical makes it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck yeah it's like you are you're there seeing touching feeling wilderness all right well thank you very much for coming on everyone i appreciate the time I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, it's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's better, H E L P.com.